Welcome, everyone. This is the first episode of the Price Pilot Authority Report. Feels good to be back on uh, podcasting. I think every one of us has been involved in some sort of podcast, but never together. And that's kind of one of the cool things about what we're trying to do tonight is to bring together these really interesting. I, I was trying to figure out a word for you guys, veterans or insiders or uh, experts. I didn't really like any of the words. So reprobates. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think the clear cut answer is influencers. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, I thank hate you, that too. one. Thank you. <laughs> so let's, let's first level off, set. I want to thank all of you for making the time because I know uh, Thursday night isn't as bad as a Friday night, but it's still going to be two hours of your time. You're never going to get back. So um, I think this is going to be fun, but this is definitely going to be a, a hell of a rabbit hole. So all the viewers at home, I hope that you all already know what Citrulline does and what beta alanine is, because we're going to go much deeper than that. Um, and so to give everyone a general idea, the, the aim in the price file authority report is to tackle current and pressing topics in dietary supplements. So what we had a pre-call that was supposed to go out 15 to 20 minutes and it went, I think two and a half hours. I should have just recorded that one and posted it. It was awesome. And I think every one of you said that afterwards to me, you're like, we should have just recorded that. It was awesome. Uh, so we wanted to assemble uh, these, this group of people and to talk about from all these different areas you guys all come from, uh, this meshing of skill sets and what you guys think maybe in terms of some hurdles that we deal with and hopefully create some solutions that can go forth. Um, I'm really excited for you guys to say all stuff because I know that tomorrow I'm going to have a bunch of text messages from other people in the industry saying how wrong you were and we can have a follow-up episode where we can discuss all of these things because I really want to create an ongoing discussion. It's really something I want to start today. But before we start, I want to just kind of give a bit of a round for everyone, um, who everyone is, where they're from. And if I fuck up anything, just tell me because it's possible. But I, I have a pretty good idea for all of you. So I think on YouTube, next to me, to my right, is Joey Savage. So Joey Savage, you've seen, uh, he was on the SIRS, I think, three or four times. We couldn't stop having him back because he was wildly controversial and interesting. Um, and Joey has been instrumental in a brand that's been nothing short of breakout in the last year, but also works at a contract manufacturer, recycled hurdles and objectives of all shapes and sizes. So I'm really interested from that perspective. Joey, you've, you've created something really interesting last year, but you've also spent how many years? I remember you, you gave us a year of how many years you've been in the supplement industry. I think if this is 21, then I've been in a guy math 14 years. Yeah. So you've got a lot of experience um, and a lot of these topics are going to be in ranging different levels of companies. And I'm excited for your side on that. So Drew, next I have <laughs> written for my notes. Drew spent time formulating in mainstream brands and proven repeatedly that he can bring innovation, efficacy, and great flavors, while also managing cost of goods enough to make the pricing affordable for, at scale for large brands, which is really cool because uh, like I mentioned, Joey has had a breakout brand with a year coming with a, a brand coming from nothing to something huge. Drew's at that like, real mainstream, like already internationally uh, distributed line. And he has to create products that are both efficacious. We've all tried Mr. V uh, Vane's, uh, Dr. Fear, all that stuff, but are affordable. And so that's kind of one really cool side of him. And I'm expecting Drew to be one of the main proponents for uh, compliance here since he's at that level. I was, uh, we're talking a lot about compliance tonight. And one of my concerns was that we don't really have anyone here that's like GNC distributed. So we don't have anyone to be like that responsible older brother for us so i'm looking to drew a little bit for that tonight hey i'm not to let you down but then again fuck him 
<laughs> so Kenton, Kenton is a bit of a mystery. You have to get to know him, which is kind of cool. Um, you had a really big year at Core last year, but you've also had a tenure there at, as well as America. And for a certain amount of time, you were at Arms Race. You've shown your proficiency in not only pr uh, formulating across a variety of brands, but also different core values and building brands themselves and complying with a variety of different world, uh, worldwide regulatory environments. So not only that, you spread marketing formulations and you have an incredible just vast knowledge of things that are either going to be interesting tonight or just add to a very hilarious side of the conversation. So Kenton, welcome. And lastly, Tim Gritzman, the managing partner at Natural Body, an industry veteran who has spent a lot of time both in retail, but also I think previously at Brands. So it's kind of a very interesting combination. Uh, he's got a robust understanding of not just how the ingredients work, but also consumer behaviors, uh, which is kind of a cool uh, addition to today's conversation and also the intra-industry working. So Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, tonight, we have kind of already, to be transparent with everyone, we've kind of already covered a lot of the topics that we want to talk about tonight. So uh, everyone has already uh, okayed the, the themes. They've There are a certain few things behind the scenes that we've agreed not to talk about, whether it's NDAs or whatever. Uh, there are a few things that we've already nixed. So if we skip a topic, understand that it's probably for someone's safety or uh, financial needs. Uh, but we're hoping to discuss the hur uh, hurdles and solutions of this community. So... With that said, uh, afterwards, we're going to open up to a Q&A. We're live on YouTube right now. So if you have any questions, I'll be watching it and I can stop these guys and cover anything. But if you have any like specific questions, let's wait till the end. So tonight, the main scope is going to be including hurdles and formulations and their relation to innovation, industry demand, and government regulations. I wanted to start off with a very interesting topic. I don't remember who added this to the group, but someone wrote novelty versus non-compliance, which is a very interesting concept. For the four of you, because Tim runs a, a retail uh, store where they don't have a huge uh, regulatory department like GNC made. They can get, they can allow a little bit more. Not everything has to be completely grass. Joey spent a year where he was in a season one of a company and moved into season two in a way that could be a little bit more compliant for worldwide distribution. And we also have Kenton and uh, the Vanilla Gorilla who have just kind of been on all different sides of the compliance side of work. So I want to ask you guys, what is in your opinion, the difference between gray area and innovation and how does, how have you seen this line blur? In other words, is, do you perceive there to be a pressure of gray area products being sold or ingredients? And how do you flirt with that? Or how do you solve that, that question? So I think the best way to do this, we kind of said before is to go and let everyone have their first round of their side of it and then open it up for discussion. So on YouTube, I'm going to go for the, the random way they put people in order. Joey is going to be first. All right. So we're talking about novelty versus non-compliance. And novelty is particularly difficult to accomplish in the, in the nutritional supplement industry. Because if you're going to bring a new ingredient to market, there's a certain set of rules you have to follow. You have to do various studies on proving the safety and efficacy. And then you have to present this in a new dietary ingredient application in a pretty well-written report that has to be submitted to FDA. That is how you truly bring novelty to the industry. Sometimes there are people that will just, you know, find an ingredient, uh, whether it's, it's naturally occurring or not. And there's rules that you have to follow on that even if they're in trace amounts in, in some plants or whatever, and <laughs> you'll bring this ingredient to market 
and it might fall into something that's considered gray area, maybe on just the fact that you haven't submitted paperwork to FDA saying that this ingredient's novel. There's other ways where you have decided there's enough data and stuff that already exists so you can forego that and try to bring the ingredient to market without a new dietary ingredient notification. And then there's other things that are just novel, you know, compounds found in nature that you can try to bring into a supplement that, you know, may have some background on traditional use and stuff like, you know, if you find like a, some random chemical in a potato, well, we all know that potatoes have been consumed for hundreds of years and that they're fairly safe, you know, but when you isolate that one chemical from a potato and you have it in sufficient quantities and you take it in a higher dose, that's where things can get a little bit hairy. Um, so I think non-compliance and novelty, you know, the, the true novelty is difficult to achieve. But then, you know, there's, there's also that rogue sense of novelty where you find this ingredient, sure, there's enough data that might be able to support it. Maybe there's traditional use and you just go ahead and, and you jump over the hurdles that, that would normally be there for a dietary ingredient and you bring it to market anyway. And then you try to work on the back end to justify what you've done. If you ever, you know, end up getting a warning letter and something from the FDA saying that, you know, this isn't cool. Um, so, you know, and then there's, there's super gray area stuff where it's not an illegal drug or it's not a, a pharmaceutical where you have something like SARMs, for example, where people are putting those things, calling them dietary supplements. And yet those things are not dietary ingredients. And I'm going to yield my time to the man from New York. <laughs> I'm not I think that's up. you, Tim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I have like pet peeves about um, the way companies will say like unique is a common one, which is abused to high heaven because, you know, the, the literal definition of unique is like there's nothing else like it um, or uh, novelty. And it's just like, oh, it's DMHA and area gerensis. And then it has, you know, citrulline and beta alanine too. I mean, I, you guys have never seen this before in a pre-workout. So um I think it's cool because you guys are talking about that from, I don't think the consumers realize like the regulatory roadblocks that are in place for brands that are trying to be compliant. Like when Ben was reading Drew's bio, I almost want to interrupt him and give Drew credit and be like, people are listening to this at home. And if they're like ingredient nerds that don't understand formulating at international level for brands of that scale is hard. There are constraints that hem you in on every side. And you guys can speak to that more about that than I can. But I think the general consumer conflates these concepts um, and, and they don't necessarily understand. Like when I do the Google report, for example, to this day, uh, I can see the queries that bring people to our website, to our stores. And you'll still see like SARMs all the time. We walked away from SARMs like four or five years ago. We just drew a line in the sand and said, ethically, this isn't right. There's still demand out there. We had a phone call today and said, someone said, hey, do you guys sell Legandrol? They know they hung up, you know? So, um, I, I think to me, to answer your question, Ben, and I'll, I'll hand the baton over novelty means either a new ingredient or an ingredients that are arranged in an unexpected or unconventional way to produce a novel experience. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of it in our industry. I, uh, you know, just a recurring critique of mine, I'm sure you guys sort of just get exhausted by this is it's just the same old shit with a new package on it over and over again. It's a me too, you know, sort of cookie cutter um, copycat industry where 
sometimes uh, novelty isn't rewarded too. That's, that's a whole different topic that I'd like to touch on later is that does novelty even get rewarded anymore? So, um, you know, I'll yield at my time, but those are my initial thoughts. Good points. And also, do you, because I, I, want, I want to ask before we go in, do you guys find that there is pressure to be in that, in that space? Because obviously you're receiving a lot of queries about it. Uh, Joey, I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of uh, questions like, are you guys going to be using an ATMHA? Are you going to be like in that? Because we define gray as a little bit of an odd space because gray kind of is black. Gray kind of is illegal, but we're kind of saying it's not being enforced yet. It's So part of this is the, I'm going to introduce a word called a legomachy. And a legomachy is a meaningless dispute about words, not their content, just their meaning. And so I think, that disease is pathognomic for our industry because what we constantly find is that we have legomachies. We're having a legomachy right now. So, and this is not anybody's fault, but this sort of definitional laxity or epistemic creep where these words are, as we're sort of positioning them relative to one another, they're leaking. And part of the reason that they're leaking is that we exist in an epistemically leaky regulatory infrastructure. Like the dietary supplement industry is the compliance and regulatory form of the play waiting for Godot, where we're constantly waiting for a more robust and systematic regulatory schema to be instituted by the FDA. And that play is constituted by a single character named Godot who never shows up. So these two other characters just sit and debate life while this other character who's in the name of the play never shows up. This is dietary supplements. When you look at the Shea, which I know we're going to get into later, right? It's anemic compared to other international jurisdictions regulatory schema for dietary supplements. Dietary supplements are defined primarily by what they're not, which is drugs, right? So as Joey said, if you innovate too far, you've now crossed categories. There is almost no other industry where a sufficient amount of quantitative innovation changes the quality. So Facebook can't technologize itself out of existence. A contract manufacturer, ingredient manufacturer can innovate, innovate itself out of existence by creating a drug. So that's part of it, right? There is a definitional limitation and also a technical and efficacy limitation on the kinds of compounds that we can create. And that ambiguity, like I said, that's pathognomic for the disease of our regulatory structure is by the way, deliberate. It's a fucking deliberate action that's, that's put there specifically to ensure um, a pretty insufficient amount of capitalization. So we can't mount legal challenges to the Administrative Procedures Act like pharma does. So therefore we can't change the regulations. So it's not as if it's accidental. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that I think that there is an, an intrinsic, intrinsic absence to the word innovation. What I mean by that is Normally a word has some third party or external referent to which people like us could point and say, hey, here's the definition of a quark and we can measure a quark in this way. And here are the mathematical theories that posit the positioning of quarks or this is how we know the spin of an electron, right? That's what differentiates a substantive dialogue from a logomachy. But here, what constitutes innovation is agent dependent. The individual agent consuming the thing is who determines what constitutes goodness in our industry and therefore what constitutes innovation. So my concept of innovation, you know, I think Tim's provisional framework is quite adroit, a, a but because there is that intrinsic element of subjectivity in our industry that, that is absent in other industries, what constitutes innovation is always a vague, ambiguous and moving target. And that, that itself 
is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And whether that whether that's dealt with on the level of a regulatory infrastructure or whether it's a more organic epistemic movement that narrowly defines what constitutes innovation, what it would do, I think, is function to create less perverse incentive structures. Because I, I also think that's part of it is that the incentive structures manipulate people towards you know, gray market ingredients. But like I said, and this is the last point I'll make when I'll stop ranting, what constitutes gray market ingredients is the FDA and the FDA acts like a petulant 13 year old girlfriend in a toxic middle school relationship. Like we go to the FDA and we say, are you mad? And the FDA goes, I don't know, put it in the market and find out. And we go, I'm just fucking asking you if you're going to be angry. And the FDA goes, you should know already. Right. And then you release the product and you get a 483. No, no other industry by God has to deal with that level of regulatory ambiguity. And that also exerts a downward pressure on the level of innovation. That was good. Well, he said incentives, and then I don't, I don't need to interject, but I just think people watching this should understand this is how perverse it is. There is an incentive to the consumer to appear as innovative as possible and market yourself that way, right? Because that moves units in some sense. There is an incentive to regulatory or manufacturers to appear to appear as little uh, innovative as possible, because if you can show that someone else has already done it, or it's, so it's like this game of hide the ball. And, you know, you're, you're sort of running two different plays, you know, versus who's looking at what. Yeah. And it, it, it was funny because you started talking about, uh, Tim, you mentioned maybe it's not new ingredients, but it's combinations of ingredients like before. Um, and Kenton's work on stabilized was something that popped straight into my head, a combination of ingredients and a combination of goals that I had not seen together before. While it wasn't a brand new ingredient, it wasn't a brand new discovered pathway or something, in its own way, it was innovative. And um, I felt that the industry felt that and saw that while not being, you know, he didn't reinvent whey protein or something. It was, it was quite impressive that he was able to pull that off. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's Kenton, you and I talk about the product every I just did bingo. I just took a bunch of names for ingredients and put them, <laughs> put them in a hat. And then I just, I'm like, wow, that works. And then just like uh, through darts at a number, no, no, I'm not kidding. I've, what I would try to do, and maybe that would constitute innovation. I don't, I don't know, maybe in one of the functionally infinite amount of other universes, innovation would be defined that way. But I think that given those regulatory constraints, you're right. One pathway toward innovation may be reconstituting a standard ingredient at either a dosage or a route of administration or dose frequency or a combination with other ingredients in order to target a lesser known pathway of that ingredient. So for example, the, everyone was on my ass about including 1.5 grams of berberine. So first of all, you're never gonna go hypoglycemic from berberine, it's just not gonna happen. It's a normal glycemic. This is reflected in all of the third party literature. It's just not gonna happen. But more importantly, I found pretty significant data in ovarian cyst syndrome in Chinese women. It was a longitudinal study examining one, uh, about 30 grams raw extract, which at the standardization percentage is roughly equivalent to about 1.5 grams daily in a single bolus dose that significantly diminished those ovarian cysts. And ovarian cysts are highly estrogenic, right? So the amount of particularly estradiol that binds to the E2 receptor on a cyst tends, tends to do two things. Number one, it hypertrophies the cyst itself, and then number two, it increases cell maturity and differentiation. So if you can control that, which is what CIRMs do, selective estrogen receptor modulators, which we're all familiar with, like Novladex, for example, if you, can, if you can institute a systemic CIRM, it tends to mitigate the 
cell differentiation, which is a key part of metastasis or any, any sort of tumor growth, then um, it seems to be effective. And that's why I included berberine in it. It had all the normal glycemic effects were almost incidental. I included it for estrogen control. I don't consider that innovative, but, but to Tim's point and to what Joey was saying, there's such little room for us to ambulate in this industry with respect to innovation that that is, I think, a, a shoddy, like rickety, janky ass way of defining innovation, but it's, it's all we have, by the way. So it's right. Like, it's where work with the tools with which we're provided. I hate to delay the vinegar even more. But one, one thing that I did notice in a lot of 2020 and late 2019, when we talked about innovation was the topic that uh, like consumer experience can be heavily innovative. Um, I know Joey uh, used sparkles in some of his products and glitter, and that was apparently innovative. <laughs> uh, but, but on a serious note, give the man his due. Come on. I yeah. loved the red, white, and blue sparkles in the 1776 yeah. reserve one. I thought that was cool. I'm, I'm drinking one of those extra experiences right now. The same one that you've had before. The the electric? By mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that in a few ways, um, I, this was probably uh, a bit tangential to the actual compliance conversation, but we talk about novelty. We've seen a lot in the last couple of years that has nothing to do with actual efficacy of ingredients, change the experience that consumers have with their products. Um, I even found one company, this is completely random. I was flying was flying out to, to Houston to see Joey and I sat next to someone on a plane that had created a company called Find My Formula. You guys can look them up and you fill out a bit of a, a uh, form that has to do with your, your lifestyle and how you work. They send you six different formulas of nootropics and you give feedback on how they felt and they eventually give you, I mean, they have a, like probably like a few different permutations of, of nootropics that are stock created and they give you a nootropic that is to your specifications, your needs, or your likes, or whatever. Um, and I think so that, this, can I say something? Is that no? Absolutely. Can, uh, can we just fuck off like the round table format where we each get two minutes? It's like, it makes me anxious. I don't know why. Like, it is, it's really bothering <laughs> I just me. I want to get like, through I, his time. <laughs> I know, but I feel like I'm cutting. And then I was like waiting for, you know what I mean? I didn't want to interject on Joey or Tim's yeah. time. Anyway, so this actually gets to another definitional problem, which is it's a, it's a measurement problem. So because so what you just said, effects are subjective. And this is an issue, by the way, with subjective self-report in even gold standard analyses. So randomized placebo controlled and double blind analyses that use something like a Likert scale. So rate your agreement with the statement from uh, not very likely to very, very likely, et cetera, right? People are not subjectively incorrigible. So the only person who knows less about you than everybody else is you, except we convince ourselves. We have a very powerful cognitive apparatus which erects these very useful, sometimes uh, heuristics, like shortcuts, cognitive shortcuts between logical or conceptual entities. And we are one such conceptual entity. And we think of ourselves as like a neat, very definable, self-similar package that propagates through time. And we're not that. So whenever you ask somebody to subjectively self-report, they have no fucking idea what they're talking about. Uh, can I, and I'll give you a very specific example. There was a, a very long-term happiness study that was conducted. And every year for 50 years, they asked people whether or not they were happy. And you know what the result was every year? About 57% of people said they were happier than the average person. You don't need a PhD in statistics to know that 57% of people can't be happier or anything more than average because that's greater than average. The, the point being is we don't have really good subjective access to our thoughts. 
nor are we capable of rendering those in any sort of objective format that I think is useful in a research methodology. So another problem that we have in the supplement industry, specifically because research dollars are not going towards us because nobody cares what a six foot three, 200 pound lean guy, how his response is to BCAAs. They care about how BCAAs are applied in sarcopenia or muscle wasting. So because we don't have those subjective or objective sorts of analyses or quantifiable effects, we have to rely on subjective effects and none of us can agree what subjective effects a given category should have. In very broad form, like we can all agree a pre-workout should stimulate you, right? There should be some sympathomimetic amine in there. Beyond that, it's entirely open for interpretation and that is another problem. So I, it's laudable what they're doing, but the way that I problematize that is you're measuring for what? Like wh what is outputted at the very end and for who? And they can say, well, they're self-reporting. Well, self-reports are meaningless to me. I just don't even take them seriously. Yeah. All right. Drew, your turn. <laughs> All right. So it's going to be all over the place. But Ben, you bought the tickets. You're going to take the fucking ride. So basically, Joey did a fantastic job summarizing up novelty, not compliance, Tim for compl uh, the consumer side of things in the storefront, and Kenton gave everybody a thesis and another deep dive. I love the points, what you said about the 32 girls and one of the best analogies ever heard of the FDA. So right off, you can just like soundbite that, that is sell the episode to everybody. With that being said, I'm gonna go in a different direction because I don't need to say the same thing everybody else has said. And it's interesting because it comes to novelty versus non-compliance. This can help our industry and it can hurt our industry. And from a formulator standpoint, um, I'm sure Joey can feel this pain as well here, is that sometimes some of these things have changed the industry, but did it change it for the better or did it change it for the worse? And this isn't a pick on any particular, but for things that have like changed, like say the pre-workout game, is over years I use example a lot. You know, no explode came on the scene. Nobody even heard about pre-workouts. That was step one. Step two came the concentrated pre-workout series, aka the old saying is, if she doesn't remember the old formula jacked, she's too young for you, bro. So with that being said, when we had this wave of gray area ingredients, like everybody thought the DMA was a new thing back in the day, it really isn't. They basically found all these compounds back in the old chemistry cookbooks and said, you know what? That could be found in nature. You know, this is a, a very powerful stimulatory ingredient. Let's put it in pre-workouts. And these days, we've gone to the point now, everybody's looking to replace these ingredients that aren't compliant because, you know, whether it be found in nature or not, that's not the debate. But it ruined to a degree the average consumer expecting that crack feeling from having these powerful ingredients we can't use anymore. So either A, you're walking the line fighting the quote-unquote good fight, well, fuck the FDA, we're going to use this ingredient anyway let's use the name Voldemort for this one person for a company I can't fucking stand that decides to say, fuck the FDA for everybody. It makes us look bad as a bunch of renegades are putting things in products that can't be used. But then that ends with the last question here. How does a brand that tries to be on the compliance side of things, even if you're not talking the high level regulations as GNC vitamin shop, or now the growing Gestapo that's Amazon from what we can and cannot put in, in products here. How do we replace the DMAA fuel? How do we replace the DMHA fuel? There's nothing that's compliant, quote unquote, that we can use in some of these ingredients that's going to have that same cracked out effect. You know, as a formulator in point, you're just like, okay, well, do you really need to have that same cocaine effect or, you know, the DMAA fuel, the DMHA fuel, insert other stimulatory ingredient here? How do you replace that? You're chasing that quote unquote, previous high that everybody got used to that you can't replicate. So then you have it evolving into the caffeine wars. At one point, I think we used to, it was at 300 milligrams and 400 milligrams, some dipshit in here in South Florida, putting 750 milligrams in our pre-workout, like where does that end, you know? So 
everybody's kind of in this ongoing race to try to replace that field. How did that help our industry? It brought a lot of popularity. A lot of brands disappeared when these ingredients got taken apart. But at the same time, if you can kind of see the rabbit hole I'm going down here. It's like, did that truly help our industry expand and change the landscape for the better? Because then, of course, your FDA comes in to say, no more. If you want to be compliant, can't use this ingredient. Now we're left chasing that gap that nobody's going to be able to fit, you know, the fill compliant-wise. You know, then, of course, when um, there's a few people out there that do specialize, of course, finding these type of edgy ingredients saying, oh, I believe it's fully compliant. I'm working on it. Okay, but then that's to Kenton's point. Do you go to the FDA and say, this is okay? I don't know. Is it? And turn up far enough. It's not, you're shot down and we're back to where we started. So I think in terms of melody, it's not compliance. That can help. It can hurt industry. How do you innovate to a degree exactly as you guys are pointing out within the staying with those framework? Is it occurring naturally in nature versus not? Is it feasible to get from nature, even if it's found there? So this is a DMA example, you know, the feasibility of getting things at a reliable extract amount sufficiently cost-effectively, you know, and some people argue can even truly be found in that form in nature. So that's my piece to add to that kind of kind of off the path from what you guys have summarized from a four later standpoint, where sometimes that novelty for not compliance can actually end up hurting our industry and, you know, it can negatively impact it. But that's my initial thought from kind of that round table there, but I'm going to kick it back off the bend, pan off the baton. So, Drew, uh, you're actually one person I want to ask this question about because I, I had a bit of a follow-up in terms of novelty and non-compliance. There are sometimes new ingredients that come out that are not yet grass certified. Mm-hmm but we believe them to be Deshaya, right? So yep. you were the first person to use Caloriburn, I believe, yep. uh, a few different NMB ingredients. Um, and uh, you know, transparently, we consult for NMB, we're involved in them as well. Some of their ingredients are not yet grass certified, though we do know that they you know, are Deshaya, they are compliant. How do you walk that line when you're introducing a new ingredient? And because that can't go into GNC yet, that vitamin shop wouldn't want it, but can you, you know, how do you do your due diligence as a formulator at that point? Well, sometimes this comes down to consulting because you're a good attorney friends. Okay, what is the realistic risk versus reward here? I mean, you can be shocked by something like picotropin that out of left field gets banned overnight by the FDA and taken to the woodshed. Or it could be something where it can fly under the radar for a long time there, such as DMAA. Um, but when it comes to that, it's like risk versus reward. How risky is the ingredient? Is it deemed? Like, interestingly, one of the biggest battles we had when we uh, brought Hyde Icon back in ProSupps in 2019 it was vitamin shop exclusive. GNC, interestingly, would not touch the product strictly because of dynamine. Even coming from a reputable company that had a very similar structure in the tea green, both from the Kutra leaf, they wouldn't touch it because of that one ingredient. Even if it was in the process of getting grass status, all those things approval-wise, in that time, the legal team would not touch that product, even just because of that one ingredient. So it's interesting... Um, not even speak to the international standpoint, it's like uh, very specifically, I don't remember if this has been updated lately, but if, uh, interesting for a long time, even on the WADA list, something like octopamine was on that list as a statement they can't use, yet it was allowed in certain places in distribution in Canada. This is a few years ago, it may have been changed since then, but I thought that was very interesting how that's not allowed, but in other places, you know, they can use other things. I was like, how do you get that? Or sometimes like the international standpoint, you find things are off the wall. I'm sidetracking now, but like, for example, Sweden, you can't use tryptophan. It's considered a drug. It's an amino acid, you know? So like you never know what mixed bag you're going to get depending on the compliance body. But back to your question there, it always about is basically risk versus reward. What is realistically the risk of putting said new ingredient in a product from a compliance standpoint, from a safety standpoint, like what's the adverse reaction possibility on it? Is it something that could cause somebody like a bodily harm? They're going to have adverse reaction, 
you know, stimulatory wise and heart palpitations, uh, anything in your blood pressure wise. Okay. Yeah. Take a look at that. But in terms of like, say a new novel version of uh, already out there extract, like a higher peritoneal content of like killer urban GP, yeah, your risk probably is minimal, you know? So do you want to walk that line? And obviously where are you trying to have your product put? So that's another part too. Like, you know, sometimes you can skate by, sometimes you can't. So it really kind of depends what deck of cards you want to play with and where you want that product to go. Good points. Dynamine thing was funny. I remember sitting in uh, Ted quarters and, the, and uh, I brought up Dynamine, some sort of product. They're like, oh, we don't allow that. Like, what? It's like been out. I mean, how long has been Dynamine out? I mean, you used it very early on. It's been years. Um, and if there's a company that I trust in terms of not being dangerous, Compound Solutions is that company. Like, they don't put out products that are even close to that. I mean, they're very careful. I thought that was kind of interesting. So I guess this is a really good time to transition to this next topic is CFR 111 and how you guys feel about it. <laughs> and this is really funny because Kenton isn't even an American. So he gets to really criticize our laws. Um, so all of these you know, circumstances of the previous theme, they come into here. How exactly would you change it if you if, if you were president for a day and they gave you an executive order on uh, CFR 111, and we can even, even include Deshea here, how would you change it? Furthermore, is the industry regulated enough? Would you require more or less oversight by the FDA if you were in charge? So if we're not doing think, roundtable, Kenton, how do you want to yeah. do it? Well, I think, I think a useful exercise is maybe we should define what Deshea and 21 CFR 111 are just for people following at home. So DSHEA stands for Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. For anybody paying dietary supplement trivia at home, it was introduced by John McCain and Orrin Hatch, worst uh, name of all time, senators, late senator from Arizona and previous senator from Utah. And they introduced this act in 1994 mm -hmm. as an amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So primarily what DSHEA does is add a number of fairly constitutive amendments. And when I say constitutive, it means they tend to constitute our industry. These amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So like a, a few of the pertinent amendments are like Section 201. So a Section 201G is a drug. Deshaies uh, amended Section 201 by adding Section 201FF that defines a dietary supplement according to the terms with which we're all familiar, which I'm going to flake on some of these, but a vitamin, mineral, amino acid, botanical, any constituent or extract thereof, or any of their combination taken orally by man in the food supply prior to 1994. It adds sections like 402, which I was just going to riff off what Drew was saying. Section 402 is what defines what's considered an adulterated dietary supplement and allows the FDA to prohibit that ingredient, according primarily to three factors like risk and whether or not there's inadequate information. So all of the factors that Drew was tabulating before in terms of consideration that we as formulators make, you have to formalize that information and, and collect fairly comprehensive Deshaies substantiation. Every single dietary supplement manufacturer is legally obligated to substantiate every structure function claim that they make under 403 R6 with reference to what the FDA calls competent, reliable scientific information. Then it adds a, a couple more sections like 413, I think, is new dietary ingredients. Section 505 is misbranded and adulterated. But the relevant section to this discussion, and uh, now I'm really blanking, the 402, I think. Section 402 says that the director must promulgate a set of regulations, right? <clears throat> so that was 1994. 21 CFR 111, the good manufacturing practices that regulate the manufacturing, packaging, labeling, distribution, and sale of dietary supplements doesn't come into existence until 2007. 
So there's a 13-year gap from when Deshaies says we must implement these good implement sorry these good manufacturing practices in 2007 when they come into effect. So when they finally come into effect, Title 21 Code of Federal Re Regulations Part 111, which is what 21 CFR 111 stands for, regulates all those aspects. So it prescribes what people like Joey must do as a manufacturer. It prescribes what I must do as a marketer. If you don't manufacture your own supplements, you're technically just considered a marketer. And it enumerates all of the responsibilities that you have and then ties those responsibilities relative to DSHEA, which as I said, was an amendment to the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. In terms of how it should likely be modified, it, they need to go in one of two directions because right now they're in this liminal or transitional state between regulation that is concordant roughly with how the rest of the developed world, like all the OECD or G7 countries regulate food supplements, cosmetics, and drugs, or they need to just go completely towards deregulation. And so what I mean by that is if you look at almost any other, <laughs> I know what Joey wants, almost any other developed country, it's not a waiting for Godot situation. So in other words, they don't define dietary supplements via negativa. They will promulgate monographs and those monographs are purity, identity, standardization. And they tell you at this dosage level, at this standardization, this product is prohibited. At a different dosage level and a different standardization level, it's allowable. And while that is an onerous regulatory apparatus through which you need to work, and while those countries tend to be more cautious in their regulatory outlays, what it does is provide clarity. So that epistemic ambiguity at which I was gesturing earlier becomes pellucid in, in those environments because if you wanna enter a dietary supplement into Canada, you know precisely how the natural health product regulations constitute a dietary ingredient. You know, I can use this ingredient at this dosage, at this standardization, and I can't at a different standardization. So for me, I would, I'm fine with either approach. I just wish the FDA would pick one and stop putting us in this compliance and regulatory purgatory because I'm sick of being in a toxic relationship with the 13-year-old Paxton who makes me go up to her and ask her if she's angry every time I want to release a supplement. It's just not, you know, it's volatile. So, so to bring all that whole answer into a little bit more of a succinct answer, your, your answer is you probably wouldn't change anything. You would just want them to uh, follow their guidelines directly. Well, yes. So there is some wonky enforcement actions, but I would rather they just eliminate, I would rather they just eliminate Deshay. Keep 21 CFR 111. So it regulates how you manufacture supplements because we need controls on adulterants and contaminants. But all of this fucking nonsense about the claims where it is, the enforcement mechanisms are so rickety and it is so conjectural. And there is absolutely no consistency with respect to the kinds of ingredients that they ultimately define as adulterated or misbranded. It's just, it introduces confusion. So to Drew's point earlier, 1,3-dimethylamylamine is absolutely shade compliant if you interpret it according to the letter of the law, right? Like it is absolutely compliant. We, USP Labs, we weren't the first people that found it. It was Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly found it in 1951. Patrick Arnold releases it into the market first, and then we at USB Labs copied him. But we did um, a phytoanalytic study that riffed off, I think it was the original 2006 study that found it um, in, what, what plant was that? I forget. Geranium. Geranium, yeah, ger geranium graviolins. So it's absolutely Deshaies compliant, but because of the ambiguity in 402 enforcement, the FDA can just say, I've changed my mind. It's not Deshaies compliant. And Sharpen up one point for them. When you say via negativa, the difference is the U.S. system defines these things by what they're not. 
Exactly. Right. But I want everyone watching this, yes. which is like, it's like, it's sort of like your girlfriend analogy when they're like, oh, hey, what would make you happy? And she's like, well, I'll tell you the things that won't. But other than that, you have to figure it out. Exactly. Right? It's, and, it's, and a, like, it's exactly. Other countries are like, no, these are the things that would make us happy. <laughs> exactly. They're like, buy me chocolates and give me a massage. And you're like, great. I yeah. don't want to do either of those things. So I'm, I'm out. Yeah. But at least there's some clarity there. Because it's via negativa, when you think about this from like a philosophical perspective, there is a functionally infinite amount of entities that are non-compliant and a relatively regional set of entities that are compliant. I wish the FDA would choose and either say everything's compliant or promulgate a list of compliant things. Love it. So as much as I'm excited for Joey to come in as the contract manufacturer, I would kind of like to go to Drew who can go very English on us after that. <laughs> Drew, what, what, what's, what's your side on this? Honestly, it's the same type of thing. I wish sometimes it's like, if you're, it's exactly like going into something, like have a clear cut answer, what is allowed, what's not allowed, not like, you know what, we'll think about this and we'll come back later because to Kenton's point there, he nailed it exactly on the head. We're kind of piggybacking off of the Dranium stem example there. It's like, okay, well, you said it was okay, but by your definition, it's not. That I go, well, I guess to the for those following at home, the point where that became an issue was because, okay, just because if something is found, say, in nature, like, okay, is is it the issue with the compound itself or because of where the compound you're particularly using is being sourced from or use a synthetic version? That's the big issue a lot of people had with it. Not so much that it, well, you know, from general aim point, is it is this a naturally occurring version or is it one that's synthetically made in a lab? The same argument can be made with something like caffeine. Caffeine's naturally occurring. Okay, well, you know, is naturally derived caffeine something like from a tea leaf going to be completely structurally different for something, say, like caffeine and hydra, synthetically made caffeine, right? So by that definition, is that falling in the same jurisdiction of like, okay, what's allowed, what's not, you know? So that's why I wish there'd be some more clear-cut guidelines. You know, the Deshay thing, same thing, same sentiment, just get rid of it. But I do feel that the main thing needs to be enforced from our standpoint is, and making this lame in terms as possible, very blunt. Are you having your shit made at somewhere that could be equivalent of a fucking bathtub or is it made a nice, certified, clean, consistent facility using materials that meet spec? You know, so that's a big far constituent. A lot of times I tell people when they come to me, like, you know, friends of formulate little small brands, like, oh, what do you think is Coman? I'm like, well, I've never heard of them. But a good um, way that I can gauge that, even from a super topical standpoint, look at something, what do they make? If they make things that like, you know what, you probably shouldn't be using that ingredient. And if a contract manufacturer is okay with using that, Lord knows what else they're probably okay with using they shouldn't be using. So, I mean, that's just a good way of gauging that. Like, I'm like, whoa, I see things with like, I touch a hot button here and I love this. I can't believe this exists. One of the things I've seen is research facts. Instead of supplement facts, nutrition facts, I see research facts. I'm like, that is not a thing. And just because you put the word research facts doesn't mean it's a research chemical. You put not for human consumption. It doesn't mean it's okay to sell. But you can even flavor it relevant to human flavors. Yeah. I'm like, I can't believe that's an actual thing. I'm like, just because you put the word Mice research. like blue raspberry just as much as we do. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I won't give it a quick example too. Just kind of circling back. I fucking hate the word circle back, by the way. That's <clears throat> anyway, with that being said, you bring up the Canada example. That's the exact one I went to there. A perfect example for those at home wanting a relative example of this is like things like synephrine, for example. There's different versions of it. They used to be called um, Advantage Z, they changed the kinetic. I think they changed them back to it. 
the same compound at different extract levels is considered adulterated above a certain percent. So you can have the exact same amount of active synephrine in a product, but it depend, they actually care more so about where, how you get there. Are you using a 50% synephrine material versus 25%? One of them is allowed, one of them is not. You know, above a certain percent is considered adulterated. You know, so and the much harder to flavor. Yeah. Exactly. So it's and the caffeine combination, yeah, in Canada, yeah, 320 and 40. Yeah, they're, they're not even worried about the total active amount of like synephrine so much versus like, oh, you know, if you put 200 milligrams of active in here, which is a lot, are you getting it from 50% material or 25% material? And like, it does the same damn thing, you know? So it's interesting how it's interpreted at times. And that's my biggest thing is coming back to, can you set some clear guidelines what we are allowed to use, not allowed, not allowed to use? But then there's a step further, like deregulations versus more regulations. It's a mixed bag because, you know, I, I wish that the playing field was like level at times isn't a complaint, but okay, some of these smaller brands of flab night ones, they are the ones that are selling some of the more brick and mortar stores that don't have ethics or whatever. Like, okay, can you, you can't even sell that shit. You have the unfair advantage stuff you can sell. At the other time too, it's like, be careful what you wish for in terms of regulation, because if you've seen like some of the, even things that we take for granted here in the US, ingredients we can use, like, for example, going back to diamine, teacrine, you can't use those in Europe. And they're completely bad. This is why we can't have nice things because if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. You know what I mean? So like, is it truly banned because of the safety issue? Is it because you don't like the issue? Like, you see what I mean? It's like, it's a slippery slope kind of like, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and say this. It's like gun control, gun regulation. If you give an inch, they're going to take a fucking mile. So honestly, from, you know, the less government intervention on type of things, I'm like, how about you let us govern ourselves? But then again, you let the loonies run the insane asylum. You have your problems as well. So it's a very interesting aspect from which it has been presented but in general let's say fuck the fda one thing that i think would be relevant to joey i'd like to hear his thoughts on next is uh you were mentioning the advantage z percentages i believe they also apply that to mucinas and hokiol as well which are uh products or ingredients that joey that you've used in uh tranquility as well right um and so it comes down to, if you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there comes down to uh, either you don't list the standardization and you lose that claim, not really claim, but, you know, label dressing, or you use something so low percentage that it almost looks like you don't know what you're doing in some ways, um, because there are higher levels of extractions. I don't know if that's helpful at all for your response, Joey, but that was something I was seeing a parallel in. You know, my opinion on this is that, you know, the whole game needs to be changed. And, you know, if we look at Deshay and we look at how it was written and everything, and it, it basically says if well, I've, I've got it pulled up, I even put it in the chat too, um, including a vitamin, mineral, herb, or other botanical and amino acid dietary substance for use by a human to supplement the diet, increasing total uh, or increasing the total overall concentration, or it can also be a concentrate metabolite constituent extract or combination of the aforementioned ingredients. That covers quite a lot. And we have access to the natural world, the things that people consume, which are consistent of animals and vegetables and minerals. If you want to get really down to it, you know, plants, animals, and rocks. And it, I, it is my opinion that if we were to take the law as it is, and as it is stated that our industry effectively gets access to everything that mother nature has made. And that's every compound inside every plant, inside every animal and inside every rock. We could take this to very, very, very far extremes to where if I wanted to send a cup up on a rocket and scoop a bunch of space dust and eat that, then I could. 
Or if I wanted to, you know, make a bone supplement made out of ground up dinosaur bones, I could do that too. And through doing so, I've connected all of space and time and connected the above and below. But that's just taking it on a very, very extreme kind of place. I think if it is animal, vegetable, mineral here on this planet, we should have access to it. And if you look at pharmaceutical companies, a lot, a significant amount of drug discovery and drugs that are developed are done by making chemical modifications to things that are found in different plants and animals and different metabolites and stuff, stuff that we actually have access to. So if we're up to me, I would create a very, very clear line that the pharmaceutical industry gets to play with synthetic derivatives or biologics that are more complex than anything that we could access in the food supply. We can't CRISPR anything. We can't do any genetic modification and we can't use synthetic things like adding chlorine or fluorine or, or any other kind of weird stuff onto a molecule to improve its potency and binding of different receptors. But I, it's my opinion, if it's in the natural world, we get access and that's not a negotiable thing for me. Um, you know, in answer to your question about extracts and, and talking about what Drew said too, you know, you can find that synephrine hydrochloride will be completely banned in one country. However, they'll ex accept a 30%, you know, synephrine from citrus orontium. And the only thing that that really does, even though you make equatable dosages on the whole thing, is it just makes your product more difficult to flavor. It's a very minor hurdle. It's something that we very easily can overcome if you if we really want to go that route. And you're going to find this stuff in the in the EU and in Canada probably doesn't taste as good or as good as the ones in the US. And they certainly aren't as good as they could possibly taste, even though we're using the same dosages coming from different places and the same ingredients. And I I have several different battles with like international compliance teams and they're like well you need to supply like you know safety data for us to like submit this to our regulatory authority and i'm like fine and i will go ahead and do that and i'll create a nice little dossier and send it to them and they get shocked and and it's it, i just don't like my job being any more difficult than it probably has to be and it really it bothers me that a lot of this stuff is so poorly researched and so poorly standardized, not just within our own country, but across other countries as well, where one country will have an opinion like Denmark, for example, will only allow you to have like 10 milligrams of niacin per day. And if you know me, you know, I'm very passionate about my niacin dosages and stuff. And I look at this and I look at this from an outsider perspective and I go, what kind of a government tells you you can only have 10 milligrams of niacin per day? It's something so innocuous as a B vitamin is restricted that much. Like what else are they, you know, not telling them or not allowing them to have or restricting them from doing There's such a weird restriction like that to me is, is very indicative indicative of what's really going on at those higher levels. Maybe they don't want you to be healthy. Maybe they don't want you to be a little bit more healthy than what they think is healthy. Or maybe they just don't want people to have access to things that could possibly compete with drugs. Uh, and also in those countries, sometimes the vitamins are drugs. And that's really kind of weird because we look at it, you know, it's just a vitamin. Why would you, you know, make it a pharmaceutical? Why would I have to pay, you know, an exorbitant amount of money to go see a doctor to get approved to take niacin to lower my cholesterol? You know, there is a lot of weird rabbit or loopholes and stuff like that and hurdles that we have to jump through that just don't make logical sense. So if it were up to me, I would change the whole thing. Dietary supplements is anything that can be consumed aside from things that are toxic or poisonous or not good for you or drugs that are banned. You know, that's all fine. 
But, you know, if it's something new and novel and it has been in the food for a very, very long time and consumed for hundreds of years, I had the same problem with Canada and the king trumpet mushroom. The king trumpet mushroom, which has literally been consumed for millennia, is not allowed in Canada because they don't have clinical safety data on it. Well, no one ever took the time to say, hey, this thing that we've been eating for a thousand years, let's check the safety on that thing just to make sure that, you know, it's still safe, even though everyone and their their children and their grandparents have been eating it for a very long time. It's things like that that frustrate me. And I would, I would change it all by just making the law a little bit more clear cut and simple. And can I ask, because you mentioned uh, all things, you know, except things that are dangerous or kind of you, for one second, you talked about things that are dangerous. You said, except couldn't you say that pretty much anything in nature at a certain standardization and dose could be dangerous because that kind of lays into the government's ability to say, Hey, this might be natural, but it's, it's unsafe. So uh, DMAA coming from geranium might be found in geranium, but there are people overseas in the desert taking too much of it and dying. Wouldn't that kind of lead it up to them to veto certain things? I would put an if then that the, there should be um, a level like a no more than level of certain dosages of certain things. And you can say that about Yohimbi or you can say that about DMA or you can even say that about ephedrine. They, you know, a hammer, if used to drive nails, is a very useful tool, but you can also murder someone. It's, it's the yeah. same thing you know you you can kill yourself with water if you drink enough you know it's it's one of those things and no one's going to stop whoever wants to you know whatever tide pot eating kind of person wants to go ahead and consume so much water that they die you know some people are just out to do that kind of stuff yeah are, that's what i was going to say is that I, i'm not a fan of binaries so mm -hmm. i'm not a fan of the inert poisonous binary Things are poisonous at a certain dose, dose frequency, route of administration and standardization. And certain compounds that are, let's say that they mitigate those. So we're all familiar with probably paradoxical effects, right? So you can take a compound that has a mitigatory effect on some disease or disease state or its associated symptoms, and you administer it through an idiosyncratic uh, route of administration or increase the dosage and it has a paradoxical effect. It has precisely the opposite effect that we would expect it to have. And like Joey said, you can drink enough water where you imbalance your sodium levels. It's called hyponatremia and die. And it's actually not that difficult. There's a, there's a famous case of that from a radio contest in California, I believe, so, where you had to chug like a certain amount of gallons of water. And, or, you know. or not drinking enough is the other thing. Or drinking too much in a certain condition of physical exertion and heat where your body releases too much antidiuretic hormone. And then you begin to retain the water. And so therefore your sodium plasma levels are manipulated improperly that way. So that partially, not to get too deep into it, is what happened with the USB Labs case, the Michael Reese Sparling, the soldier that died from rhabdomyolysis. It was a pretty clear cut instance of rhabdomyolysis, which is where muscle byproducts uh, enter the system and then uh, you have a, essentially acute renal failure. He was exercising in 106 degree heat and chugging like 13 liters of water a day. That's going to be a, when you combine that with physical exertion, extreme heat and excessive water consumption, is a natural consequence but yeah just to joey's point that poison's not binary so you would expect some reasonable restrictions and the fda does this anyway the F fda has threshold for carcinogens adulterants etc they already do this sort of thing for on the manufacturing level it would just be a matter of instituting it on the dosage level because i was going to actually ask about that specific case 
Now, I was working at GNC at the time, and it was all hearsay, but wasn't he using multiple scoops of the product as well? So this is, this is I'm dating myself, but I actually took that customer service call. So it wasn't his family. So on a MedWatch 3500 or 35A form, you have the minimum data elements. And for anybody listening, a MedWatch 35 or 3500A form is either the voluntary or mandatory adverse or serious adverse event reporting, right? And so you need to can, can collect a minimum amount of data elements. There's the initial complainant, there's the patient, there's the adverse event or serious adverse event. So was medical intervention required? Was it death, life-threatening, uh, hospitalization even on an inpatient basis? You answer yes to any of those and it's constitutionally a serious adverse event. Um, and those are the minimum data elements. So some woman, I can't recall her name, had absolutely no connection to the case whatsoever, phoned USP Labs and reported that somebody had died, this individual named Michael Lee Sparling. Gave incredibly sparse details, made it seem as if he dropped dead out of thin air. But for USB Labs, you, can, you also are required to collect those minimum data elements. And then not a lot of people know this, but when you tender your MedWatch 3500 form, you can present an argument against the form. So you can critique the doctor's conclusions if they have one. You can critique the initial complainant or, uh, or subject's report of events, right? So a few of these instances had already come in where Rabdo was obviously involved. And there was actually a significant amount of research showing that an LEO and military PT, so law enforcement and military physical training sessions, the rate of rhabdomyolysis is significant because of that constellation of factors that I earlier identified, extreme physical exertion, heat, and then the overconsumption of water. So it was a matter of what is the likelihood that this compound that has been consumed to the order of magnitude of millions and millions of doses, and at least there's a survivorship bias or or visibility bias, right? Like, I don't know how many people didn't report, so I can't test that null hypothesis and run the experiment again. But what is the likelihood that it's intrinsically dangerous in this way, and it just so happened to manifest these specific constellation of symptoms in an individual who was doing a group of activities that we know to induce rhabdomyolysis? But, so it's sort of tangential, but the point being, was it really 1,3-dimethylamine in that case? And I have no love lost for the owners of USP Labs or USP Labs. I don't give a shit. I, I don't like them at all. Um, <laughs> nor, nor do I think they're good people or positive for the industry. But uh, the facts are the facts. And so is 1,3-dimethylamine sort of dovetailing this entire discussion? Under Joey's rubric, it should absolutely be a dietary supplement. And I think that you could even provide fairly good safety data if they allowed us to present anic data but they don't allow us to present anic data. So you can't create an evidentiary record based on the amount of observed doses contained and then perform a regression analysis and present to them, hey, look, man, even testing the null hypothesis and eliminating that stochastic element, like the effect was not observable. The proportion of doses consumed of jacked versus the amount of reports, meaningless. And I know this for a fact because I was the individual who processed the reports. So, yeah. Uh, as much fine grain or not that you can divulge uh, in its heyday, how many units of Jack 3D were selling per month? Mm. Te uh, tens of millions, maybe? Doses? Individual doses? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, because you know, you, it, you're right that it's unfalsifiable uh, in, at that level, but like if you assume these bottles aren't just being discarded, we exactly. pretty much have the, you know, the a, a long, you have a mass scale longitudinal study. Yes. A, a natural experiment. Yeah. Probably 20 to 30 million doses sold per month. Even if you assumed only half 
are being consumed, 10 to 15 million doses consumed per month and one death. And we're like struggling to prove the adverse event, you know? So, all right. So at the beginning of this, I I kind of talked about stacking hurdles and trying to find some sort of solution. Uh, We have a bit of uh, a discrepancy here. In some ways it should be sort of binary that if it is natural and occurs uh, on earth and it is not synthetic, it should be allowed. But in certain dosages, uh, where toxicity is involved, uh, we should the government should be able to veto it. Can can we offer some sort of solution that's a little bit more defined? Does anyone here have an opinion that would be a little bit some way to marry the two of those? Because I thought Joey had a really good point at the beginning. But while I am very libertarian and assuming that everyone should be able to take care of their own health, I do agree that if we let DMAA out into the community on just pure and actually existing. I can probably expect a good amount of people that would hurt themselves pretty quickly. Um, how would you guys see this sort of vetoing process or, um, you know, way to pull back on this sort of ingredient? I think the, well, okay. So I want to add one point of color to the previous discussion. I have, I have, uh, formally and informally, um, you know, consulted for companies on formulas, but I don't have the experience that all the other gentlemen have in terms of actual in the weeds with CFR and everything. But I'm somewhat proud to say that from dealing with the consumers and doing the flyby and talking to everyone in the industry, I sort of reasoned my way up from my bootstraps that most consumers are somewhat being misled to believe that there's this dearth of, you know, this sort of data and and safety. And if you look at the questions that I get henpecked to death with every day, it's always like, well, I took 1200 KSM. Can I take 1400? I took it for 6.7 weeks. Can I take it for nine weeks? Like, it's like, they are, they are obsessing over the minutia, but the thing I've said for a long time, and it's so it's probably my most controversial take is if you guys remember, I was, I said, not that I'm against, um, uh, full disclosure or not that I'm for proprietary blends, but I, I said that that's not the real issue. The issue is, we need regulation one level up on the manufacturing side. My somewhat soundbite solution to this problem is to force companies. I don't know why there's opacity. Companies should have to divulge where they manufacture full stop. That would that would remove so much of these, um, you know, just like, again, opacity and misunderstanding of people are worried about what the label says, but to Drew's point, they're not worried about, is it made in the bathtub? Because they don't understand that that could even be an issue the regular consumer doesn't understand that the the repute and the the degree of rigor of the facility matters far more. I think, and, and then you know, Ben, I know this is somewhat off track with your point. So no, no, I I, I, I see the connection. I, I do want them to answer about the binary thing and how do we solve that problem with the dosing. But but I also think like like if you want to, you guys talked about some of the libertarian take, and we look at these forward thinking countries. I think like not that is that not not Venezuela, but somewhere in South America, like all drugs are legal uh paraguay i don't know but like you can go get like i know in like denmark too you can go do heroin you have to say like i have a problem i need a counselor but like yeah so like like not that i'm likening to that because that's going to give us an already you know besmirch our industry even more but like like you know what it is though it's pure heroin it's it's the drugs are pure they're made with pharmaceutical rigor they're dispensed through a dispensary they're not sold by drug dealers the the chain of custody and the the manufacturing rigor and the way they procure the substances is all, you know, clean bill of health. So 
we don't have that right now. I think everyone obsesses over the ingredients and a lot of it doesn't make any sense. It's completely fucking arbitrary. Like they said, right. The Joey Kenton and Drew were listing in sort of like nauseating detail that how ridiculous some of the, the regulations are, but like, they're like, Oh, you can do all that. Like don't get slapped on the wrist about synephrine, but like, we don't even know where you manufacture. It just says probably made in the USA for so-and-so, you know, XYZ company. And to me, that's what I feel like I want as a consumer. I talked with, um, uh, Josh Shaw about that a little bit. And like, you know, you look at, see, we take our, our tune from CPG a lot. And like, if you look, if I go into Whole Foods, a new trend is like, this was made at this farm on my eggs. You know, it says like date, lot number, location. A lot of these places you can go to the website and be like, oh, let me look where the chickens are that laid my, you know, like the consumers are going to demand at some point, or they should that degree of transparency more so than like, is it 50 milligrams of, of DMAA or not? You know, and, okay. and we can draw lines around that sort of arbitrarily, but we don't, we still have the opacity of the manufacturing. So anyway, I want them to weigh in on that. Well, can I, uh, did you, did you guys watch Supersize Me too with the chicken one? Oh, well, they go very far in on the whole, like, uh, Joey, I'd be surprised if you didn't see this. It's all about chickens. Uh, it's it's all about how they they basically I can- I that's unpacked at some point later. Uh, Joey is an expert on chickens. Joey okay. knows chickens more than anyone I've ever known. Two or three minutes for that, just at the end. <laughs> um, anyway, the idea is like, even though you know, like, hey, this was this this egg was laid by a hen named Emily in Illinois. That hen like probably doesn't actually exist, and and the free range, the access to outdoors, is a one foot fence that faces east that they can see the sun rise, but it doesn't, you know. And so that's kind of. Drew has gone into this on his story. I think he knows where I'm going with this, that I could tell you this is made in a manufacturer in Georgia, but you have no clue what they're doing there. You know, like, and, and and I absolutely agree, Tim, because like my tenure was that Nutribio, you know, that's like, I consider it my own mater. I think that we should know everything about everything that it goes into our bodies, but no yeah, matter what. Say, because there's a lot of people, I don't mean to cut you off. I'll give it right yeah. back. There, there, there are a lot of people in our industry that are going to watch this, even more so than consumers, right? And the, the number one pushback I get from industry people when I make that point that Nutribat does a great job, they're like, you don't understand. Our facility is just as good. That's so unfair. You should not speak about things you don't know about. And I'm like, look, guys, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but then you need to do a better job of publicizing it because they do a good job of, of showcasing the degree of rigor and everyone else like they'll pound their chest and say we're just as good we're just as clean we're just as rigorous but like consumers don't know any of that they don't it's, yeah. a, it's a walled garden uh, over which they cannot see so anyway yeah i mean okay go show it like ghost has an entire youtube channel with fifty thousand subscribers and they post armada on their their youtube yeah like that they literally pull the bottle off the line and show it to you like they show the line you know like yeah. ghost is another good example Right. So yeah, that's kind of my, 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 my whole thing. And, and this is where Joey will probably say that he would never allow cameras in his area. Cause like it's, 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 a, it's a, it's a risk, but if companies, cause I get this all the time too. So I'm sorry, Kenton, I know you want to say. No, it's okay. I don't think it needs to be visual, but so I'm probably, I'm, I guarantee I'm the least libertarian here. And there's no offense to you guys, but libertarianism is the most incoherent political ideology of all time because it's, it's self-defeating. And what I mean by that, that. Let's take the idea that everybody should be allowed to consume whatever they want. The premise of libertarianism as articulated by Friedrich Hayek, right? Especially in the road to serfdom. He's like the grandfather of libertarianism requires a degree of transpicuousness or transparency that is impossible to achieve in practical terms. So the heart of libertarianism 
is the sanctity of individual choice. If you have no idea who manufactured your supplement, you're not making a choice. So I would agree with a libertarian framework provided two things. Number one, I would exempt dietary supplements from any state or federal general sales tax and apply an ad hoc consumption tax. 50% of the income from the consumption tax goes to funding research and development in the dietary supplement industry. So we would get a 10 year lag period from the FDA. The FDA works with the Department of Commerce, at least in the United States, to institute this ad hoc consumption tax. And they say, you guys have 10 years to form an association, create the principle, the, the system or body of investigatory uh, system or body of investigatory principles that you're going to research compounds, but they have to be salient. So it has to be the specific dose, dose frequency, route of administration, and targeted population, so we can no longer make inferences from non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus applications of berberine to healthy people. And they give us 10 years to produce this data, and then we're on their own, and they absolutely hammer us in enforcement. Because one thing that's lacking is post-market enforcement. It doesn't matter what the GMPs are if the FDA never follows up. So that's the one part of it where I'd be fine with a more, a more libertarian schema if they institute this tax. And the second is exactly what Drew and, and we're talking about, full end-to-end -end regulatory chain transparency. I would even go a step further than the manufacturer. I wanna know where the ingredients came from. And all of that must be disclosed on a revised supplement facts panel. And then all of the facilities must post all of that intake sequestration data, how they vetted it according to the certificates of analysis. If they did that, great. I'm, I'm for Joey's approach, but the problem is a consumer in our industry, the, the economic term is a negative externality where a marginal social cost outweighs marginal social benefit. And but the, 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 it's, getting, it's getting handed to somebody else. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And so that negative effect, you can't vote with your dollars in a capitalist system when the manufacturer is obscure to you. So let's say Drew makes a product and it kills my best friend. And Joey's using the exact same contract manufacturer. I know this, this example doesn't fit. I can't choose not to use Joey as the con or Joey's and Drew's shared contact manufacturer. I can assume all the risk fell on Drew and that Drew didn't do his due diligence, but really it's the contract manufacturer that's shared between them. And then my choice as a consumer is obliterated. So if we do Joey's idea, which I think is good, you pair it with the consumption tax, the fund research and development, and then end to end, the entire thing has to be transparent for the consumer. And then I'm there, I'm there all day, even though I don't like libertarianism. Let me ask you, Kenton, uh, from an ethical standpoint, uh, and I, I, this is probably gonna get too philosophical if I say that, but uh, <laughs> who's to blame though? Because if your friend died because Drew wasn't testing his product out of the manufacturer, do you still blame the manufacturer or do you blame Drew because he wasn't doing his due diligence as a marketer? So, so both. So this is a problem. Uh, Tim and I have actually debated this a lot. So my primary ethical rubric is called utilitarianism. And utilitarianism is, is, is just a political and ethical philosophy that looks at the change in, uh, of, or looks at marginal utility, the change in hedonistic states from an act. If you reduce someone's marginal utility, so you make their life worse, that's bad. If you increase their marginal utility, it makes it better. There's all kinds of problems with scale and identifying to whom the externalities accrue, right? In that specific circumstance, it's both Drew and the manufacturer. Drew bears a moral responsibility to properly vet his contract manufacturer. The contract manufacturer bears a moral responsibility to vet the ingredient suppliers, right? And in this circumstance, I don't think a ton of moral responsibility accrues to the consumer because that pathway, like Tim said, is so opaque now. 
we institute the libertarian system with a high degree of transpicuousness where everything is transparent, then the moral balance tilts. And now I would be more in favor of a libertarian approach where it would say, okay, caveat emptor, it's now your responsibility having all this information at your disposal to identify the weak cog in this machine. Like that. I think that's been one problem. Mike and I have, have been pretty outspoken that a lot of the times, like ACSP's Jack 3 was, was a bad example, but brands suffer the consequences of issues, but manufacturers are, I mean, you can still go to a, at least a dozen manufacturers in America and get very non-compliant ingredients, right? Mm -hmm. Someone is making dark energy. Look at the so, scandal last year yeah. where the contract manufacturer was manufacturing for over 50 brands was found to be completely non-compliant, falsifying certificates of analysis. Right. It, it was a ripsaw through the industry and you went, really, they, they and them too, and that guy, and that was all opaque to the consumer. How is the consumer possibly supposed to make a choice not to purchase from random contract manufacturer A when to Tim's point, random contract manufacturer A is not stipulated on the label of the product? And yeah. to, you know, encourage them to, I say that I'm guilty of exhorting my viewers in the flyback to vote with their dollars. It's so opaque that sometimes like we'll get um, batches of stuff from brands and, you know, we'll get a return and the customer, the consumer will call us and say, I swear to God, I used to look forward to this, you know, you name it, blackberry lemonade. And now I hate it. And they, they definitely changed the flavor. So we'll call the brand and the brand will say, well, you know, that one we had to run through our backup manufacturer because, you know, there was overflow and there's too much of a log jam over here. So we ran it through a different manufacturer, but, you know, they assured us that their Blackberry Lemonade is good. And it's like, what, like, what are we doing? You know, and like, and the consumer is think about like, they're led to believe like, this is the brand that you love and you support them. And, you know, with the age of, of social media and everything, they literally think they're giving their dollars to the, the principles of the company, which they are in some respect. And you know, they, they, like they look forward to the thing they enjoyed last time. So you want to talk about utilitarianism, like the marginal utility went way down. They, 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 they'll accuse us of, us of selling like counterfeit goods. And it's like, you know, that's how muddled these waters are. And like, there's no good, like brands aren't talking about this enough. I still think it's a big opportunity for a brand to document that end to end, you know, even if they are a marketer, because like, I would respect the hell out of a brand who's like, yeah, we manufacture at SDC or whatever. Like, just put your cards on the table. I'm inter really interested in what Joey has to say, so I'll shut the fuck up after this, but you've hit on a very interesting point, which is that more than in any other industry, a brand in our industry is a set of colors, so a color palette, some iconography, and some fonts, and that is it. That's it. Everything else can be outsourced. You're not purchasing the bottles. Your manufacturer is purchasing the bottles. You have somebody different doing the labels. Your manufacturer is purchasing ingredients from ingredient suppliers, and they're all conglomerating this and you put your name on it. Now, Deshay and 21 CFR part 111, they're called flow through responsibility. So you guys know like a flow through corporation where ultimately you're responsible for the net income. So as a marketer, whoever introduces the product into interstate commerce has a flow through responsibility to ensure that all the other provisions of 21 CFR 111 are met. But look at that disjunct for the consumer because the consumer sees uh, buttfuck labs, right? And they don't know that buttfuck labs is actually this random, like absolute rickety constellation of 14 other firms. It's like a PO box in Nevada. Exactly. Yeah. Other industries are, are, not, are not like this. Other industries have whole manufacturing plants where they're taking raw materials like steel, pressing it themselves, assembling it, et cetera, right? And, or they, are, they have so much capital that they control the supply chain 
But because our industry is under capital, under capital, we can't do that. So we don't control the supply chain. As a result, you have this like eye pencil thing. Sorry, you're muted. Muted. My bad. Um, I wouldn't say that we're undercapitalized, if anything. I think these brands make absorbent amounts of money, and what they choose to do with that money yes. okay. may not be in the in interest of the industry. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's a whole different deal. You know, if if and 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 let me let me go back to what you were kind of saying, Kenton, where whoever the brand owner is who has this flow of responsibility that all these other ducks are in a row is in regard to CFR uh, 21, that they're not doing those things. We are in a super saturated industry right now. There are way too many brands that exist because there's no way in hell that all of these brand owners are making sure that all the ducks are in a row. It's impossible. And for everyone that comes out, every Instagram influencer with their own product line or, or, a, or an IFBB pro or a Mr. Olympia or whoever this or that is, you know, they suddenly have their own product line. If anyone gets like a substantial amount of Instagram followers, you know, hold tight. They're going to drop a supplement line here pretty soon. That's happening at way too fast of an alarming rate. So these people can just get mailbox money and they have no idea what kind of risk they're putting themselves at. They're not making sure all the ducks are in a row. They're leaning on a contract manufacturer or, or whoever else to make sure that all that stuff is done. And they have no idea. They just go into this thinking they're going to make a bunch of money and have no problems. And they're not doing all the rest of the work that they should be doing. And there's so many people willing to jump on board and start a brand out of nowhere that have no idea what they're getting into. And it'll be really interesting to see what kind of enforcement does come down the chain just to the brands. They, well, and, and let me, I'll, I'll touch on another thing that's kind of weird. If there is no enforcement via legislation, via laws, via actual FDA going to places and enforcing those laws, there's this new interesting thing, which I would call like economic enforcement. And I think that's probably something that's more near and dear to Drew because, you know, pick a million wasn't made illegal. It's not illegal. You can still try to find pick a million. It's, it's, it's a phenyl GABA or nicotinyl GABA. Um, phenyl GABA is a different story. But uh, the, it's, it's niacin, B3, and GABA. It's an amino acid. Both of these on their own, individual dietary ingredients, totally fine illegal. Stuck them together. Not a whole lot of science going on there. But all of a sudden, there, there was whatever legislature in Oregon saying that, you know, this isn't a dietary ingredient. And then all of a sudden, Vitamin Shop decides to implement a corporate policy under the pressure of these legislators to go ahead and voluntary recall everything that's in it and never to sell that ingredient again. And that's true with, nope. most, that's true with and, most and ingredients. Yeah, no laws were passed. It's not illegal. You know, you can still possess it. You can still take it. Everything is good and fine as far as your your ability to take in the cotton oil GABA. But, you know, you're not going to be able to get it into any stores or anything like that. And I don't think that that's fair. I, I think that in a way, like, you know, if it's if it is something uh, granted, you know, maybe we don't have much of a leg to stand on with with pick a million. I kind of think we do. It's fairly safe. It, it's if anything, it's unremarkable in its effects. That, you know, to, to say that this is something that's like a danger to society is just completely false. It was just something, some legislator wanting to die on a hill of looking like a hero and not helping anyone. Oregon, the self-same state that just legalized Schedule 3 drugs yes. uh, for personal use. 
So you can I'm, do crack, but you can't have nicotinol GABA. Yeah, no, no piquet, no picotropin for our friends, but uh, heroin is okay. In section 402, which is the section of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that refers to the FDA determining that a dietary ingredient is definitionally a drug or is a bare minimum adulterated, right? It's at the FDA's discretion. It's hilarious because the subject heading for that chapter says FDA's burden of proof. And then it essentially says at the FDA's discretion, they may determine that the dietary ingredient in question is adulterated or a drug or an unapproved new drug because it poses a risk to human health because there's inadequate information or because the company made impermissible health claims about it. There is no arbitration mechanism in place. There's no further information that determinates what is an unapproved new drug from a dietary supplement. And there's no immediate um, like administrative procedure where we can appeal. And what I was saying earlier about pharma and the Administrative Procedures Act, Administrative Procedures Act is passed by Roosevelt in 1946. And the key cog in that is judicial review. All agency administrative decisions are subject to judicial review. And the pharma industry used this to great effect to essentially cudgel the FDA into submission, right? We can't do that. And when I say undercapitalized, Joey, that's more what I mean is that because we don't, I agree that there's a, a very small, like a Pareto distribution of firms who are responsible for promoting about or producing probably about 80 to 90% of the net revenue in our industry. The rest of us who don't have $35 million to burn on an APA based lawsuit, we can't launch a lawsuit about Picamillan. And because we're too far arborized, right? We're, we're too branched off in our little islands and silos. None of us are ever going to like put the money together for that collective revenue pot to fight it. And because the potential net revenues associated with Picamillan are so small, no one actor has the incentive to use the mechanism of the APA to sue the FDA and tell them, you guys violated your own law. In pharma, when an ingredient may alone be billions of dollars, pharma has that incentive and that capacity. And what well, well tie those dots together for maybe consumers that are watching this, Ken. It's like when a uh, pharmaceutical company owns the IP to a drug, they set the supply and the price. Yes, so exactly. they essentially can, you know, uh, garner uh, profit to, to the extent ours, everything goes to this free market. So all the profits are eroded uh, and it's essentially a race to the bottom. So something like Picamelon will always get um, like bid you know, from overseas and then driven down in price. So there is no undue or outsized profit to be had for, for dying on that hill as the person who's going to take the legal fight to the whomever. Yeah, exactly. The FDA. Yeah. So Tim, I'm glad you brought up the, the free market because that's the title of today's episode is the free market broken. Um, and so I want to kind of carry that theme as we go through the next. I think that this question in terms of uh, CFR, DSHEA regulations, I think we've beat it sufficiently well if you guys don't mind moving forward. Um, this is one thing I think about all the time and Drew said it before and this is the most interesting question I think on this whole thing to the consumer does any of this serve the consumers are they net better or worse and are they being misled I think that's you know that's like part two how would we fix it and then like that's to me what's I didn't mean to cut you off but go ahead yeah well that's actually really important for this question I think kind of uh Tim this was uh, actually one that you kind of submitted uh there's a bit of a, a lead in here. There are supplement companies that are good at marketing and there are marketing companies that sell supplements. Does the industry select for innovation branding or ingredients? Furthermore, marketers convey certainty in their claims. Is this good for the consumer or not? We're taking a bit of a, a left turn here, but I think that it's pretty important after we establish the regulations that set the ground rules for these people. Can I, can I introduce uh, an argumentative condition here? 
is there English. any other way in the way that it is? Like, so one question is, one question is, is this good for consumers, right? Like this, mm -hmm. this perverse incentive. Another more structural question is, is there another way to do it? And I think I said this on the pre-recording, would anybody buy a supplement if instead of on the front of the label, it said sick pumps, it said, this ingredient may increase localized blood flow in this dosage, in, in this subject population, at this route of administration, at 180 minutes, but not 240 minutes. So you may be able to expect something comparable if you consume it in the precise use conditions. No one fucking buys that supplement, right? So that sounds like what you'd have to do for Canada compliance. Exactly. Right. Isn't that, wouldn't that be like flirting with a drug claim and you can't say that? No, no, that would be a very, that would, to me, what I just said is a cut and dry structure function claim, right? Because have you guys ever looked at Morphogen's website? Health claim as enumerated in, in uh, I think it's 21 CFR 10193 and then 403 R6 to the Drug and Cosmetic Act. Health claims are those that purport to treat, prevent, cure, mitigate any disease or associated disease state. And then in separate documentation, the FDA uh, expounds on that by giving you 10 criterion by which uh, a, a permissible structure function claim might be a health claim. But no, I was just saying that like- Well, I'm saying is the incentive bad in that regard? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Know, because like sick pumps is nebulous and hard to pin someone down on. Like you're not gonna, you can't litigate right. that. No, well, that, and that's part of the reason why is that the FDA does a, you use this term last time, Tim, but the FDA does allow for a certain amount of puffery. So like sick pumps, because it's inherently subjective, there is an incentive, right, to push that out. To use like ornate language, yeah. Have you, have you guys so ever looked at, a, you know, give a, a shout, to give a shout to Ben Hartman, have you ever looked at his product pages for Morphogen Nutrition? Uh, like I just pulled up Volugen, their, their non-stim pump and performance blend. There's bullet points here. And I mean, this is the most crazy to part from sick pumps ever. It literally says, may assist with blood flow, nutrient delivery, and, and muscle cell volume. May assist with hydration, plasma volume, and thermoregulation. May assist with oxygen uptake and utilization and endurance and performance. This goes on for like 12 bullet points. I mean, yes, as the function, if you go to core and you read the full science, I usually write like four or 5,000 word. His write-ups are good, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, to, that, that's my Deshay substantiation, by the way. <laughs> I right. just repurp or Doug, like Doug repurposed it in the marketing context. But my point was, is there another way? So right. it, it, that's my, I'm asking you guys that, like if you guys think that there's another way to go about this, that people will actually purchase. Because if there isn't, then again, via negativa, right? Or by definition, we are in this space, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no question conveying certainty works it, it in, in that it moves units it, it begets sales uh my maybe unpopular opinion is that consumers aren't served by that all the time um and that that tension is tough to grapple with because uh it's certainly it's like a you know it's it draws consumers in its wake when you have this big a big endorsement like uh joey was talking about uh a big claim, uh, a, a certainty claim. I'm not going to name who they were, but one of the most obnoxious marketing slogans I ever saw was the intelligent choice for every individual. <laughs> that was a real thing that was rolled out in an ad on a, like a nationwide, uh, in like Europa, you know, and all, all the different avenues that uh, you tend to see those sorts of things. But like, that's, that is so obnoxious. Like, I don't want that because like how I'm not every individual I'm me, but like, Unfortunately, it seems to work. There's, it has a big gravitational pull that way, um, as do sponsored athletes and high-profile endorsers, like Joey was saying. 
I think another issue is like the other, a follow-up question I would ask is what is a good supplement? The, the fact that that question is functionally impossible to answer is a huge epistemological problem for our industry. So uh, I don't know if anyone wants to go down this rabbit hole, but we talked in this pre-meeting about an organon and what an organon does in philosophy. But that's precisely what an organon does, is it provisions you with a set of investigatory tools to define something like that. And I think partly as a consequence of existing in this compliance purgatory, I think partly as a consequence of being insufficiently segmented, our industry doesn't possess the organons or the investigative tools to provide a standard where all of us abstracted away from our roles in the industry could say, here's what constitutes a good supplement of the form X, but we, we can't do that. And I, you know, a third part of it that I perhaps didn't mention is that, like I talked about before, subjective self-reporting is inherently leaky. So that could contribute to why that, that border is so porous. But let's, let's look at another industry, right? What is a good motor? A good motor is a motor that produces a certain amount of energy at a certain amount of fuel consumption, right? And we can argue about, about the specific construction of that motor, but that definition that relies on thermodynamic principles allows somebody who likes BMW and somebody who likes Mercedes to have a discussion, like a discursive exercise that's based in some objective metric. Quantifiable, right? yeah. Quantifiable, exactly. And we can't do that. We just, we literally cannot do that. I'm waiting for the day that we can yeah. talk about supplements like cars, where like how Elon Musk goes out and goes, I can go zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And if you are able to market your product, like in a sense, by the numbers, if your dosages are there and they're, they're transparent, and if there's clinical studies at those dosages, and that's also very transparent, and there's no confounders in the study, then I think that, you know, if you're able to take something like an ingredient and market it by the numbers, then that's going to save a lot of headache. And, and, and especially if those studies are normal, healthy human volunteers and it's not, you know, confounded by any conditions or anything. Well, if oh, I would say that Ben's point about look at morphogens and compare that to sick pumps, bro. And Kenton's point, the question that Joey's essentially proposing is, does that get rewarded to the extent that it should, if someone has robust clinical data, they can tie, because I don't think it does like, I wish it did, but it does. yeah, it does it all. I, I just think the incentive structures don't select for that. We have a very broken evolutionary mechanism in dietary supplements. And I, that, so Ben, you know, when you said, um, how did you start this? Is the market broken? I think that there's, I make two inferences from that question, right? There's one way to take that question, which is there was some prior state of affairs where the market function and the purpose of a market is to select for some good or property X, right? That's what markets do. They're a selection mechanism. Mm -hmm. The other way that I inferred it is are markets broken? The premise of markets, at least in their application to dietary supplements, is that even a good way to think about dietary supplements? Because of all of the factors that we've enumerated here, it, it complicates a straight market-based analysis. And this, by the way, is where the FDA as a governmental agency needs to pick better fucking winners and losers. And not just create those perverse incentives. I think For the record. Good. Sorry, I was just going to say, is the free market broken? Was just a clickbaity title. Right. It was just. I just wanted to spark a little controversy. <laughs> We've made a mechanism that nominates and elects and rewards people, 
before their products. And often, as you guys were throwing into sharp relief, the people have at best some sort of, you know, fleeting tie to the products or, or, you know, there, there are athletes as, as many of you were pointing out that have never even been in the same room as the place where their products are made or designed or formulated. Uh, there's just a contractual obligation to post a certain amount of times. So there are good people and I want them to be rewarded. But the, again, that's where I feel like the people that walk in the stores are not buying formulas. Now those are entry level lay consumers. And then you, there are tiers and you can move your way up from, you know, sort of dilettante all the way to, to expert and everything in between. But, um, you know, unfortunately there, there are, there are people that work for me that, uh, have pre-ordered Chris Bumstead, I believe is his name, the classic guy. He's got a new side, side project for his pre-workout. Now think about it. how many pre-workouts does natural body have in our warehouse. They could, they could avail themselves of 50 at minimum that are good. I'd like to say, I mean, like, that's my joke because I could blindfold you and make you do spin the tail on a donkey and shove you into my pre-workout wall. And you probably wouldn't hate anything you landed on, you know, maybe, maybe not ideal match to your preferences, but there's no like bad products on the shelf. That's like, Oh, that's a trap. But they've looked past all of those because it's Chris Bumstead. And like, I don't, I don't think less of them, but it's amazing to watch the gravitational pull in action. So this is a case where I would say, um, I was starting to think of my own response to this where because we were asking what is rewarded in this industry and there are a few brands that are uh on their way up that do not say we're the best they don't communicate on their formulas in in all transparency they trust myself to communicate education on the formulas and they communicate their lifestyle side of things but for instance um Chris Bumstead's idea here uh the formulas are not bad they were I actually formulated. I'm, I'm yeah. just critiquing the, you know. Right. I know it's they not were, replied because Rai doesn't make pre-workout, right? That's the. No, correct. It's it's okay. Jack Factory. Okay. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to name any names, but the person be, that, that did the actual formulations alongside Chris is someone that all of us, I can confidently say, mutually respect. But the marketing of this is not, this is the best. It's like, uh, it's like a sleeper under the hood which we, in my opinion, we're seeing some more of recently. We're seeing companies come out that are like, hey, this is our line. They've got all this lifestyle content, but under the hood, take the product. It's actually really good. And they didn't make any claims that this is the best. It, I don't know. That's a special use case though, because it's influencer driven. They don't have to because they just have Chris. Right. He just go to his 2.5 or however many Instagram followers he has and says, take this. And as long as he does a good job, because a lot of influencers aren't willing to do that sort of thing, even when they sign on to a brand. Right. But if he is willing to do that, he's going to sell products. So they don't need to. I think the better question is, can random company X without 2.5 million Instagram followers behind it, take that same approach? I don't know. Yeah, I, I let me ask, hey, so let me ask Joey, because Joe, Glaxon went zero to hundred very quickly last year. Without a big influencer stable. Yeah. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm moving into this. There's not, I mean, you, over more like impressive the, to me more it's harder for sure yeah so you guys don't have a huge influencer community um you didn't already have a, a huge established community to activate um and i would i would ask you the supplement lab videos is kind of mainly where you uh convey your education do you think that that made a huge difference in the the hype that was developed or because for me most of the people still don't understand Glaxon's formulas. In my opinion, I don't think they understand the intricacies on your performance, but they love the effects. 
then maybe we don't have that many customers. I don't know. Um, I think that I think the videos help with the the placebo effect for sure. You know, okay. it gives people a logical expect expectation of like what's going on inside their body. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's happening inside of them. It's part of that invisible universe that you know few people like you know the guys here get, get to have fun explaining every now and then. But you know, there's there's that factor to it. Um, th- as far as the zero to a hundred it's a lot of fucking hard work and it's, it's not just, you know, making videos and all that kind of stuff, you know, cause, cause right. I wouldn't even say we're at a hundred. We might be cruising at like 55 right now. We're, I wouldn't I'd certainly say we're not at a hundred. Um, but you know, it, it, it just has, you have to just have a message, whatever that message is and just put it out there. And the thing about Glaxon is Glaxon just let its freak flag fly and it didn't care about anything else. And it, I, I think that there's a little bit of authenticity in that where, you know, we just weren't afraid to be as weird as we were. And, you know, in, in, a, in a saturated kind of industry, there wasn't really anyone being that weird. You know, you're, you're either like tough or cool or, or, you know, just really friendly and healthy but no one was really being like, you know, do you understand like how crazy all this stuff is? Like, you know, and, and that's where we were able to step in. Um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird way of, I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I don't even understand your question like all that much. Because my, my question really is that you guys didn't come out and say six grams of citrulline, 2.5 grams of betaine and hydrous. In, any, in, in, in some explanations, I would say that you guys even kind of shook that up really hard. Um, Outside of the insiders that talked about, hey, this is how flight works. This is how specimen works. I felt like most of the people that were engaging were just like, I don't really understand it, but I love these products, you know, and it was kind of a really cool effect to see that you guys weren't out here pushing. This is the best. This is the best. We have the strongest pre-workout. We have the highest doses of, of, of X, Y, or Z. People were just enjoying the experience overall, I felt like. You were to tell me two years ago that there would be a full throttle zero to somewhere between 15 100 uh up and coming brand that uses a sound of music julie andrews facsimile reference on the bottle that seven people get uh and they're going to be prominent i would be like yeah no that's not like to his point like i think kind of my point yeah yeah like it's it's super like I don't even know if anyone else is really appreciating how ridiculous that is but it works and i think that's his point it's like no idea was too weird, right? I don't want to speak for for you and Glaxon. Credit though, I think oh. Joey said that resonated with me was it wasn't zero to hundred; it was fourteen years and the 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 crest. Yeah, the, the vaunted yeah. overnight success. Yeah, yeah that right. it's then that happens a lot. Like I entered the industry around the same time as Joey, two thousand six, two thousand seven, and just talking to him a little bit, we both slogged through it before we had like you know super successful brands. So that's also part of it. I actually think Ben, uh, you know, you and Ryan, Shane, Justin have a key role in this sort of thing. And I don't, I don't, Joy, I don't want to take away any of your, your guys' success, right? Because it's um, maybe a necessary condition, but not sufficient to utilize embedded organic media in this way. But I always look at to like use a biological analogy. Ben, you and, and your colleagues are like, you function like PI3K functions to like mTOR. It's like a downstream process. So in other words, you have to activate PI3K to initiate a downstream process that eventually tells uh, mTOR to get the ribosomal assembly going. And then we look at the end product as protein synthesis, right? 
But without those downstream processes, and nobody get at me because I know there's non-mTOR mediated mechanisms of proteins into this. Without those downstream mechanisms, the product doesn't happen. And I think noticing just kind of and peering behind the curtain at Glaxon from, I don't have any interior knowledge of Glaxon, but I'm just looking at how they operate from an observer's, observer's viewpoint. You guys brilliantly utilized those sources of media. You guys seeded the information properly. And then that way, Ben, Ryan, you guys do your thing. And do you have 100,000, a million subscribers on YouTube? No. But do lots of people who have 500,000 or a million subscribers on YouTube watch you? Yes. Does, does the product that you recommend then crop up in their Instagram story? Yeah, it does. So do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, that's also uh, becoming, I think, a more concretized pathway for success in our industry. Where there can... are taste tastemakers, I yeah, think, exactly. yeah, yeah. Uh, is sort of how I view Pricepow and similar media companies yeah. that are uh, have good uh, standards and, and ethics um, tastemakers. You know, there's a lot of bad actors in that space too, though. So, uh, you know, but over time, the cream rises. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I would have, when we kind of reviewed at the end of the year last year, we saw that we we rose very quickly with, with Glaxon. Um, and I think that um, our personalities matched really well. I enjoyed the craziness that was Joey and Michael and, and the team. And that was what's kind of cool about it. Um, it was refreshing in an industry that can be very clinical in terms of claims and discussion. Um, and yeah, I, I would definitely agree that we kind of gave them a bit of a vaulting point, um, which is easy. I don't want to say it's easy to do, but it, they were a, a fresh slate, you know, Drew coming into, into Dragon to bring this a little bit full circle. Kind of hard to give him the same kind of vault because they already... What did you what did you guys have when you came on? You had like a hundred thousand Instagram followers, you know, like you're already seated and 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 established. When Glaxon is seemingly not nobody, but they're a new face, it's easier to be like, hey, check out these guys, they're gonna do something crazy, you know. I agree with that. And then I was just kind of rolling around the table there to make a good point. It's interesting because like tying all this together, first off, like I love Glax Glaxon's branding and like that's fucking cool. Like the spaceman, the comic book act, it's just so much cool shit. It's like off the path. I love that. And of course, you know. It ties into kind of what I do too. To that point, obviously, the influence thing, Dragon Farm, we've had a lot of high profile names associated with the brand. That certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah, then it comes back to question, a totally different topic, ROI on paying expensive athletes versus how much they actually bring in terms of sales. Yeah. It doesn't hurt the exposure, okay? Not getting into that. That's annoying. Right. Anyway. But no, so it's actually the credit, having like a lot of the right things come together at the correct time. Obviously my trajectory, you know, obviously it's been a long time coming with that to get to Dragon, like, wow, okay. Prosups, Feather Firmware's brands, the name is out there. Then you launch a Dragon, like, okay, they have my attention. They have some of this in the formulator veteran per se, now taking over the brand aspect, the vision of the brand moving forward, Prox and so forth. That met the road. You have a lot of high profile athletes. All those things came together in our favor. Now back to that point is, it's interesting because how this whole topic kind of came together. Marketing companies that sell supplements or supplement companies are good at marketing. It is very interesting where you cross this road. And I prefer to approach this in levels per se, because to the morphogen aspect there, if you go on, like say the dragon website, I do a lot of thorough breakdowns. I like to make things where it's like, okay, you know, obviously you have the things that most people care about pumps, energy, focus, buzz terms, things that people uh, grasp and understand, you know, then you have that wave of people that I'm, I'm actually happy to see this as kind of people are wanting to know more about the specific mechanisms. How does it work? You know, like enhances nitric oxide production via whatever it may be. And you have the write-ups, the claims, the references, so on and so forth. So you have this 
cross point, okay? Real estate on your packaging, marketing claims and so forth. What is going to be digestible for the average consumer where they're going to understand it? and also substantiate what you're saying to get the message across in an effective way because it's a different level even you hear some people speak like i i think i'm good at conveying things in layman's terms joey does a great job of this as well but then what do we say that's going to be scientifically backed that people understand while keeping the interest of the consumer while not just giving him a nebulous fucking term like energy pumps focus workout intensity right versus how do we convey that it is scientifically backed it does have some good research behind it but it's not just another me too product you know but at the same time you go too deep in those weeds there at what point does a consumer give a shit okay it could be like whether on your content the videos the q a's the i do dragon science videos you provide different levels of content where okay the things you put out there initially this is what draws a consumer in this is what gets their attention this is what captures what the product's supposed to do however you provide those levels to it if they want to go to the web website, then we'll look at the next level of it. Okay, we have this video it explains how the product works on a topical level. You have other deeper dive videos and you explain the ingredients, explain some of the research behind it. On the website, you have the basic product description, you have the main bullet points, and you have the science tab. Okay, what are some of the individual ingredients? What's the bullet point? You should create levels to it. And I think that's something that I'm loving to see. I know that Kenton touched on that. Joey does a great job of that as well as Glax. And it's like, what is the rhyme and reason for why you're making that product? You know, so it is interesting how most people aren't just satisfied with just the status quo of what basic information is out there. Because the thing too, I find everybody says the same thing about pre-workouts in a term. If you're asking me, what does a pre-workout do? Okay, typically energy, focus, pumps, training drugs, right? Why everybody has the same damn product. So how you differentiate that? But at the same time, how do you make it simple enough where people could understand it? right? That's where the struggle becomes because not everybody's going to walk into Tim's store and demand. I wouldn't, and it's just, it goes to contract manufacturing. I'm not going to go all the way back to that, you know, but what do people do with the information they're given? If somebody asks you how much sucralose is in per scoop of this pre-workout, how much, you know, they want to have exact breakdown of the flavor system even, but what information to do with that? Can they digest it? Do they truly know the parameters of what makes it effective or it's not effective, you know? So it is a growing I think something that's brewing in terms of more consumer information that falls both on the brand as well as of course the science and research side of it. But it is interesting to see how all the kind of things you guys talked about come together to make the industry better. And I kind of go back, you know, everybody went from proprietary blends and concentrated pre-workouts to the full-blown 20 serving clinically dosed protein scoop size pre-workouts where if it doesn't have full clinical dose of everything, it's fucking trash. You know, because then people, they'll go after and attack Glaxon. Well, like, okay, well, there's all these different things in here. This isn't the look of the dosage I see and everything else. Therefore, it must be underdosed. But when you look under the hood and you have them explain it, it's like, man, this is beautifully crafted. This makes perfect sense and works on synergy, right? So, and that goes to Kenton's point. I know I'm all on the board here. Well, how do you define what's a good product and what is not a good product? Are you compare, okay, this pre-workout is a good product. Okay, well, it's a stem free. It doesn't address energy. It doesn't address focus, right? So how can it possibly be a good product when it may be everything else dosed in there through a different pathway to be a fantastic product? So you see what I mean? It opens up that can of worms at Pandora's box, which is a topic to touch on there. I know it has touched like six different points here, but yes, that's what you last. I want to make a, I want to, I want to ask you something, but I uh, just wanted to make a, like a very quick mm, excursive point mm -hmm. i completely agree with drew unless you predefine your demo to want an extensive amount of information so just as there is like i don't know very bite-sized like blinkist style buzzfeed information there's also three-hour podcasts that I, I sent some to ben today and tim and i have literally spent hours talking about podcasts before and i think that one of the ways in which our industry is limited 
is that we don't broaden our demographic. We think that there's one supplement user, it's 18 to 35 year old males. 18 to 35 year old males have a broad interest base. And there is a way to triangulate dietary supplements with other interests as Glaxon showing the burgeoning gaming market is starting to show that, which by the way, is its own shadow economy that we have not talked about or recognized. I don't think anyone's referred to it, but companies like G Fuel are absolutely dominating esports, right? Because they've triangulated that market that way. So I agree with Drew in principle, unless however, you've defined your market that way where they want those extensive breakdowns. And I, I think there's potentially market there. But the question I wanted to ask you, Drew, was like, I have thinking about it, I've only been part of brands that I built. So I was USB Labs' first employee. And then I went and Doug and I created the America brands and then Arms Race Nutrition, right? I've never been in your position where you're coming in with a very definite career trajectory with a pre-established entity. How has that experience been different for you and going from building a brand from the foundation up to coming into a predefined entity? And has that been a struggle in terms of there's a push-pull there where you have a, a demo, you have a brand identity, you have a narrative, but you want to push in a certain direction? Or No, absolutely. And just from seeing personal experience, you go into some brand and it's kind of, I'm at the, uh, the luxury now where I can kind of choose where I choose to go, where I choose not to go, so and so forth. But early on, you have to kind of get in where you can. So earlier brands are, you may go, and this isn't casting shows on anybody. If you go into, say, an established brand um, that's been on the market, say, I won't be afraid, say ProSumps, right? They have a pre-established customer base, kind of the pre-established demographic there. There's a lot of different people that are in charge of things at the brand. You can suggest things, but at the end of the day, are you going to be held back by how much the product can possibly cost? Are you going to be held back by, for example, like, oh, I guess in the group think here, well, everybody else is citrulin. We're not selling things like we should be. Why don't we have citrulin in this product? Citrulin, citrulin. Because they go by the buzzword, the common things. It became my whole, my whole MO is to kind of go against the grain. Like, man, fuck your citrulin. I'm, I'm going to go out of my way to prove that you don't have to have it in a product to make it a good product, right? So there is that power struggle that you're touching on there where sometimes you kind of have to appease everybody to make them happy. We're okay. It hits the cost that we have to make to make the product, you know, to be you know, profitable on the market. But then again, we have to, I want it to be scientific, science-based, okay? They also have that, the check the key boxes there to engage the consumer where it's not far enough out there that nobody understands it. But then again, it's also different enough where it's not the same cookie cutter product. There's been times I've gone places as well. I'm not afraid to say as well. You go into GET and nothing gets accomplished because anything you present that's new, that's different, is going to be shot down to people within the company because, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, I don't know about this. Oh, well, okay, you've been doing the same thing for the last 10 years. That's not moving the needle, you know. People have come in there after me that have done a good job of starting to kind of push that trend and push for the direction of the company to prevent stagnation. But then, of course, I love to put a beautiful analogy got the dragon and the beautiful part about my CEO, he lets me do my job, which is great because he like, you know what? You're the science guy. You're the one that's in charge of making the product, make it, you know, it has to be, you know, reasonable in terms of cost, but at the same time, if you can justify it, you can explain it and create that vision and kind of shape the brand in terms of the products or where the direction you want to go. That's a beautiful situation to be in. And I understand not everybody has that luxury. You know, Joey's got that same kind of thing at Glax and he gets to kind of formulate as he sees fit. I have that same opportunity at Dragon. So it is kind of at the mercy of the brand you're with, of whether you have to fit a predisposed, I guess, niche. Like, honestly, I don't know if I could go somewhere like Nutribolt to work for Cyocore. I don't know if I could go to Dimatize because I wouldn't be able to use the full extent of my capability and my vision because, okay, you can only do things within certain parameters. You know, you can debate that point from what standpoint, how much are you allowed to innovate? How much are you allowed to kind of go out of that box? You know, 
are you worried about just hitting those numbers or worried about bringing new innovation? You know, truly, what are you allowed to do? So I see your point beautifully there, and I hope that didn't deviate. Yeah, no, no, I just, I just, yeah. so I had such a different experience. Of course. I, you formulate a product for a brand like America, where its brand identity is these gray market ingredients. It's just written into its DNA versus mm -hmm. when we're formulating for something like Arms Race, where we are GNC exclusive. So everything that we make has to fit in a little box. Yep. And then the funny thing is though, is that I'm probably most proud of my formulations for arms race, because given the constraints, they were to me the most innovative, not, not necessarily because they were the best products, but because given the constraint of working with GNC, I'm shocked at what I could push through there and also how efficacious I consider those supplements. So I was just wondering if you had a similar sort of. And that's a one last point. I don't want to keep extending this out there too. One thing that was really cool was what we were able to accomplish uh, with the Hyde Signature Series uh, at ProSups into making a Walmart version pre-workout. It's interesting because you look at the kind of things that's kind of shifted there. Like the big thing I noticed is to look at this. I'm like, man, like we look at this like a half strength version of Mr. Hyde, both from a, what's allowed in there versus the cost standpoint. I'm like, damn, in theory, you could argue that a, a serving of this half strength Mr. Hyde Senior Series is still stronger than a full strength version of the regular C4. Like, you know, it depends on what aspect. So it is kind of cool on some things you can kind of shape and tell a different story and go about different pathways, but that's exactly it. And that is a very cool thing when you're allowed to kind of stay with it. It's kind of like, um, like the cooking shows, right? You have a grocery basket, you have a certain amount of ingredients to work with. Like, all right, what are you going to make this creative, this cool within the certain constraints that everybody else has? How can you be different? That's truly the good analogy. Yeah, I was thinking like, before you even said that, I was thinking about like recipe creep when there's no constraints, like, oh, we put a little of this in, we put a little, and soon enough you have like, what was that like ridiculous thing where it looked like someone had like a seizure on the compound solutions catalog? <laughs> bucks. Yeah. And then part two, the innovation to me, I'm going to say this one last thing. I, I don't care if it hurts people's feelings, it's whatever. Innovation isn't putting as many branded ingredients as you can possibly find on the on everybody's fucking catalog. Oh, they have this and this and this. Let's put all these branded shit together in a product. And it's the best because of that. That doesn't make the product the best. It, they have to have a rhyme and reason. Don't just throw random shit in there for label claim and for label dressing. It needs to be art. There's an art and a science to formulation. The science is understanding how the art fits together. Yep. And there's a certain amount of craftsmanship, I think, associated. So like, you know, one of the reasons why I appreciate what Glaxon does, or I appreciate when Tim does extensive breakdowns on the flyby, is that Tim will always highlight craftsmanship and formulation. And he'll take 10 stories to, to kind of extricate an ingredient from its context, explain it really well, put it back so that by the 10th story, the consumer has an understanding of this ingredient and therefore the formula that they didn't have on the first. It's why, you know, I've told Tim before he's doing God's work on the flyby because I, I really think that he spends time discussing craftsmanship in a way that I don't think we do a ton in this industry. Tim does an incredible job with his uh, flyby and he's not even paid for content. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, well, at least as far as I know. But it's, it's, OnlyFans, where he just uh, yeah. you just do the flyby on your OnlyFans, Tim. I'll subscribe to your OnlyFans. We, you know, we kicked it, we kicked it around, but I also felt like the death knell for bodybuilding was when they tried to paywall paywall everything. You remember? Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not trying to be the New York Times because I feel like consumers, for the most part, do do a good job when it comes to us to thank us via, you oh, know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate the compliment. I know that's a compliment uh, wrapped up in that thing. So thank you. Yeah. I uh, I don't think I ever told Joey this, but one of my one of my biggest things when I do videos for his products is like I try to um, figure it out exactly what he was trying to do with it, and and I 
the most proud I get is when after Tranquility texted me, he's like, you figured it out. You got it. Because <laughs> I have a lot well, of respect together. for people. Because anyone can, anyone can take the Supplement Facts panel and Google it, right? And and I try to distinguish myself away from reviewers who just Google and regurgitate, right? Trying to find those. That's the art that Kenyon's talking about is connecting the, like my, to me, when I get like little bursts of pleasure on the flyby, it's when I'm able to connect disparate seeming things for consumers because I'm trying to like turn lights on in their head. I'm not trying to be like, well, this is arginine, you know, like that's obviously very uh, formulaic. I wish that was an incentive because Tim, you and I have had these conversations before where you've messaged me about a formula and I've been like, that's not at all what I was thinking. I was thinking this specific thing and then send you some data, which you're probably already aware of, right? I wish that was incentivized for because that level of craftsmanship is to what I'm always aspiring whenever I'm formulating is so, but unfortunately, like you said, Tim, there's seven people who can appreciate that depth of craftsmanship and our industry doesn't select for that. And then because it doesn't select for that, it puts a downward pressure on heterogeneity and therefore you get just a homogenous, like you said, wall of pre-workouts that all look the same because it's very, 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 very difficult without somebody like Ben or Tim to comport to a consumer. You'll have to trust me that this is not what you think it is, but I promise in the end, you're getting a better product. It is very, very, very difficult to thread that needle. It takes long format discussions to do it. There is, you know what I mean? There's no way to compress and compartmentalize those into digestible label, like PDP, principal display panel planes. You have to extend, like it's a temporal relationship. You have to extend that label out in time. And in that time reference, you're stashing in your website, you're stashing in your Instagram, your YouTube. So you're extending that label experience into time, utilizing Ben or, you know, Tim, I'll, before you go on a flyby, I'll tell you like, this is exactly what I had in mind for the product. Um, right. And it's difficult so, to convey that. I, I, I will say I very frequently take 25 minute long videos and edit them until about 10. So, <laughs> um, I, like what Drew said about like, unfortunately, you know, you do kind of have to like, what's the, it's like pigeon is the word for that P I D G I N or like trade speak or coin of the realm. Like you have to say pumps, you can't like, not like morphogen is uh, admirable and super, in, uh, interesting brand that I think Ben has done some awesome stuff, but like, it's like, um, apparently the story, I think I've said this in the flyby, but, but bear with me that people that pitch snakes on a plane, they couldn't get it made until they got to someone and they're like, Hey, it's jaws, but on an airplane. And then, the, and then the producers were like, Oh yeah. All right. We could do that. You know, Samuel L. Jackson. Great. So like, you can't, if something is just unmoored from anything the consumer understands, mm-hmm. you have to connect it up to something they do understand. And that's what I think. Cause like, in one lens, uh, Dragon Pharma could be like, oh, it's a bodybuilding brand. Like it's a hardcore, whatever. But his formulas are awesome. So like, but he has to connect up to like, oh, sick pumps. But then, like he said, you can sort of self-select off the menu what level you want to ingest his content. But like, um, yeah, like it, it, it's hard because they don't speak often. Ben, you probably struggle with this too, to make a, a video like that. Really, you can get super in the weeds, but like you have to connect it up to something they understand. Mm-hmm. I have a- to very frequently make sure that the content is relevant to the viewership that's going to be looking for it. Yeah. Um, when I did uh, core poise, I could go a little bit further in because it's Paul Revelia's people who are interested in the science of it. Uh, and there was one ingredient there. I can't remember, but I, I remember calling Kenton and be like, I, 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 I know there's more to this ingredient. I, I know you didn't put it in here for like, 
I know what this ingredient's for. I know that's not what it's for in here. You have some weird thing, and and, and he helped me through it. Um, and it it was some weird thing, but I think it was the iodine, wasn't it? Maybe no, I think no, I, I think it was obvious. I think it was the tyrosine for right. the TSH. That, that's what it, it was. Yeah, for uh, triiodothyronine. Because because I was like, all right, people are in stressful situations. I get it. You want to give them tyrosine to like you know get them back in focus, but more. yeah, no, it's because at a certain point in their menstrual cycle, most women have a small declination in T3 to T4 interconversion. So the thought with tyrosine was providing more substrate for T3, like triiodothyronine to thyroxine interconversion, and then sidestepping that mechanism, providing more raw substrate to begin with by combining so, tyrosine and iodine. Anyway. Let me grab all of this because we're really, <laughs> we're really tangential here. And, I, and, and uh, Drew said something before that actually brings this conversation into the next topic, which I think kind of rounds all of these things together. Hopefully he mentioned the protein scoop size pre-workouts versus the concentrated pre-workouts. We have a very simple question that we all agreed on that we want to talk about. Um, why do all products look the same? And, and, and I guess you could say Joey's products don't look the same. And that's kind of cool for him, but in general, there are these huge trends in products, whether it is citrulline in every pre-workout, which Drew seems to hate, or, um, you know, caffeine needs to be 250 milligrams. If it's over 350, you're crazy. Um, or even as simple as one thing that we talked about a lot in the pre-call was why 30 servings per pre-workout? Why is it a 30-day a, a cycle, right? What, what, where do these things come from? Are they damaging to the industry? Which one would you burn if you could? I have an answer, but everyone's going to fucking hate it. So maybe I'll, I'll do it at the very end. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to hear Tim first. Cause Tim's kind of been like the, the mid pack answer a few times. And uh, I think here, like consumer behavior responding to things is kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, again, I don't know if those preconceived preformed notions of what things should look like serve consumers or if they're just like a meme unto themselves it's like a self-replicating meme where you know because we talked about the parody and the sameness and the copycat nature of our industry uh i think people are stuck within those horse blinders where when they go to the drawing board and say let's make a completely new product and they they do mean that that's their intention but they smuggle in all of that apparatus that this is what a pre-workout should look like um, and that was another thing too. This, this brings us all the way back to, to uh, innovation or novelty. It's like, it's like breaking that paradigm in of itself or, or one of those sacred paradigms can be novelty. And sometimes Kenton was very um, adamant about this last time is that consumers will reject those things on their face because of the, simply the paradigm. They don't, it's almost like my point about connecting it up to known concepts. If you give them a three pound protein, this was always my problem with core in a good way, before Core rebranded, it was like consumers didn't know what to do with the price point. It wasn't five pound. It was an isolate. It was like 50 bucks, but it was three pounds and they didn't know where to put it. They were like, well, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Things are two or five. Like, I don't know what they're doing. And you're like, no, it's three pounds. Look at the servings. And they're like, yeah, I'm just gonna go with this because it fits into what the boxes of what I think these things should look like. So it's super interesting to me when one of those things does get uh, the table does get turned over, you know, like, like the, the transition from uh, fully disclosed to ultra concentrates. And now we've gone full circle and we're back to fully disclosed clinical doses, you know, um, albeit, you know, in a different era, right. It's not um, like uh, dark matter and uh, the ones of your, but uh, 
what was what was MRI like black powder or something? Was that it? Yeah, black yes. powder, like the the individual stick packs and like the little keg looking thing. But like those were the the non ultra concentrates that preceded. I mean, obviously, I know Explode. Everyone knows that one, Super Pump Two Fifty. But um, yeah, I, I again, I I like we didn't even talk about with the ghost in innovation, like their, their formulas are awesome, but you would argue the brunt of their innovation is on licensing flavors, branding packaging. That's somewhat uh, redolent of Kenton's point about like, um, is a brand, you know, typography, iconography, color palette, or is it something else? So I'm all over the board. I know that Ben, but I just want to get the, the topics rolling. Um, we're probably, you know, very, very uh, over time on this podcast, but um Consumers don't know what to do with the things that don't fit in to, to, to meet uh, conceptual buckets that they have. And often those buckets are just formed by what came before it. So go ahead, everyone can interact with that. My question a lot of times comes down to is like, is a consumer deciding on something because they truly know what they need? They believe in that product, they've done research on it, or is it because some dildo that eats gummy bears like, you need eight grams of citrulline malate. Okay, is that why you're picking it? Or is it because you actually did the research and you have like a rational reason? Yes, I didn't completely call out dumb fuck. Is it because of what everybody else is doing? And that's what everybody, okay, you know what? They have citrulline, they have citrulline, they have citrulline, they have citrulline. Okay, that must be good. That must be what everybody needs. That's me what I have to have. If it doesn't have it, it's fucking garbage. Oh, everybody has 30 servings. How come you have 45? How come you have 21? It doesn't make sense. Oh, I'm getting ripped off. Because one is like, people don't know how much ingredients cost. And two, if you, okay, I'd love to give you more servings or I'd give, I'd give you, you know, whatever it is. If a, they're going to bitch about the price point. They're not going to understand the cost of goods or because it doesn't fit in that perspective box there. Then sometimes, you know, people complain about even little things like they don't understand that's filled by weight, not by volume. I'm amazed into the year 2021, we still have this conversation. But, you know, it depends where does information come from? What sense that bar is very troubling. And that's honestly times getting a consumer to understand something like, you know what, to give you the product that you want at the price you want, you're not going to have the amount of servings that you think you're going to get compared to everybody else. You know, so that is interesting how things have gone where, okay, instead of 30 serving is 20 serving because it's a premium pre-workout. And I'm thankful that people got it out there that some of these ingredients are more expensive and therefore, okay, wow, it's a huge scoop. There must be expensive. There's a lot of stuff in here. That's why there's less servings. And then people just bitch like, oh, there's only so many just drink black coffee. And then there's a complete, you know, antithesis of everything else or all this stuff is garbage, just drink coffee anyway. So anyway, I'm kicking it off with that. Where does the information come from? Yeah. So my answer is, I was going to say, I think that pre-workouts are 30 servings and conform to a homogenous form factor, both in terms of their presentation and their dosage for the same reason that kids still go to school from eight to three. We all still work from nine to five and that cars are all the same size. Like there is, there's some developmental inertia with every human pursuit where there's a first mover advantage. The first mover determines the form factor and because we are absolutely terrible at change, we don't adapt that way. So I think I said this in our pre-discussion, but cars are roughly the same size as Roman chariots used to be and roads are roughly the same size as Roman roads used to be that affords for a single lane on each direction. Now, part of that's morphological. There is only so much space where you can fit two humans horizontally allayed from one another, right? But from an aerodynamic perspective, horizontally allaying humans is fucking terrible. When if you were to put people cockpit style two by two, your fuel efficiency massively increases because the entire car's morphology changes. But if you release that car, nobody would buy it. We put children in school from eight to three because it roughly corresponds with harvest time. 
Nobody harvests anymore. There's like 2% of our population who are farmers and yet children still go to school eight to three. We had a roughly diurnal cycle of nine to five following sunrise and sunset on the Eastern seaboard where most of the population was concentrated for the first 150 years until the Western expansion of the United States. We still follow that format, despite the fact that we are all in different states having discussion and I'm in a different country. And there's absolutely no reason for offices anymore. The cubicle itself, the office format was some random German asshole's idea because he actually thought it would increase workflow, but it didn't. And despite the fact that we had significant evidence that cubicles reduced productivity, we still stuck with it anyway. So there's that part of it, I think. There's just a developmental inertia, right? Somebody sets the form factor and they probably had some random justification that you should have one month supply that was bootstrapped, that's relatively arbitrary, but it corresponds roughly to our experience. But then I do actually think that there are intrinsic limitations. There are only so many things you can fit in a pre-workout on a cost basis that anybody will pay for. I think the point I would make is that to answer your question, Ben, those constraints are entirely arbitrary when you drill down to them far enough, but sufficiently self-justifying this deep into their trajectory that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to completely abandon them. So even a product like Stabilize or even Joey's products, they still conform broadly. Like to, to Tim's point, they have to connect to, to some extant form or else nobody will purchase them. But the reason why they are is entirely arbitrary. There's, there's no sufficient justification for that. That's the answer that I thought everyone was going to fucking hate. It was like, a, Sorry, well, I, I, all right. Am I unmuted? I don't know. You're good. Go, you're good. Okay. So I think it's a, it's, it's kind of like a mix of what he was talking about as far as like the, the, the Roman chariot making the size of the road and the size of the car and everything. And I think that something is kind of happening. We can especially look at the pre-workout category, possibly the stimulus hat burner category The the market demands the market demands certain things and you know they're going to want caffeine for example and and you know red pepper extract for a fat burner but if you're in a pre-workout you got beta alanine and betaine and all the standard block of stuff and i think what's going on is from market behaviors and what we we you know see in our minds you know not just as you know creators but also consumers of these products this is what a pre-workout looks like this is what a fat burner looks like these are market categories and I feel like eventually through different trial and errors and different formulas and stuff that we're going to wiggle these things into what are called category obsolescence that, you know, we, and we've pretty much nailed about 75% of that with pre-workouts that it's got to have caffeine and beta alanine and betaine and, you know, taurine and electrolytes or whatever stuff you're going to put in there. That's part of that standard block. And that's, what we know. And if you deviate outside of that, if you wanted to come out with something like a Jack 3D pre-workout concentrate today, the majority of the people that understand that standard block of pre-workout ingredients would reject that completely. It'd be like, that's for idiots and losers and stuff like that. But there's a considerable amount of idiots and losers who don't know anything about supplements who suddenly come into a GNC and get sold to pre-workout concentrate. They think they're doing great and they're getting jacked up on stems. There's no performance ingredients. There's nothing really else going on there other than some sort of chemical motivation to get them into the gym. And I, I, I think with our, our standard block stuff, we're, we're starting to, you know, wiggle to where, you know, it, in, in addition to the fact that companies copy each other over and over and over, but, you know, we're, it, it's kind of like a, a stem cell that suddenly is like wiggling into its fate of becoming this thing or that thing. 
and it's going to happen with pump and it's going to happen, you know, with, with intro workouts and all this other stuff, you know, you can have differing opinions, you know, like, like Chris Bumstead's pre-workout. Love it. Except one thing. I don't like that Hooper's DNA. Take that Hooper's DNA out of there. I would buy and take that product. I don't like Hooper's DNA around my workouts. And that's my opinion. Other people can have other opinions and that's fine. But, you know, I think nine out of 10 people look at that pre-workout and they'll be like, that's really good. Probably a 10 out of a 10, depending on the taste. And I'm like, no, nine, nine out of 10. (laughs) Remind me of is smartphones. So if you guys remember around 2006, 2007, when the category was proliferating, it was like uh, a Cambrian explosion. There was all these just wild form factors. You had flip phones and you had reverse phones and you had like massive phones and small phones and button phones and touchscreen phones. People right? were attempting flexible phones at exactly. one point. Exactly. Fuck you. Exactly. It was literally a pre-Cambrian explosion, explosion, sorry, where the ecology had not put pressure on morphology, right? So the environment hadn't dictated what a mor- the morphology of a smartphone looks like. Now every phone is a roughly six inch slab of glass and metal, all of them. There's almost no hardware differentiation between Samsung and Apple. The differentiation is in the experience. This is something that Joey is hitting on with Klaxon. Is that, and Joey, this isn't take away from your formulas because there's a, a considerable amount of craftsmanship. Take away from them. Go ahead. But I think, I think what Glaxon does best is user experience. Now, the formulas are part of that user experience, which is why it's brilliant. But for me, that's the actual space for innovation in our industry, which I don't think is synonymous with mere branding. Mere branding is colors, iconography. Klaxon has a deep brand experience. Their website's fucking weird. The social's fucking weird. The season concept is built into it. Their formulas correspond to everything. It's vertically integrated from a branding concept rather than a manufacturing standpoint, though you guys are also vertically integrated as close as you can be from a manufacturing standpoint. That for me is the, the, the space for innovation in our industry moving forward because I do think that we have the smartphone problem now where Apple famous, famously lost a number of patent cases against Samsung because the judge rejected that you could patent a six inch slab of glass and metal. I think we've reached that point with the pre-workout blocks. And to Joey's point, there's room to ambulate within the margins, but I think those margins are now well-defined enough where the wiggle room is becoming increasingly narrow, where there's tons of space to play is in brand depth and how you present that brand and how you create a tribe for your consumers that's different. I think in our category, there is a certain amount of like the conventional marketing books would call it conspicuous consumption, right? Like, um, you know, the anti example I would always get in college or just through reading is like bed sheets. Can you even articulate what brand bed sheets you have? It's not on your social media, doesn't move the needle for purchasing anything like that. But um, conspicuous consumption is like, you know, you're broadcasting something like cars or, you know, sort of the prototypical or archetypal example. So there's conspicuous consumption and now everything everyone does it ends up on their social media, but there's also what I would call, I'm not sure if I'm inventing this or not, but something like aspirational consumption. So when you when you purchase uh, an arms race or uh, a Chris Bumstead, it, it's saying I aspire to be like this person that is the, uh, the figurehead of this brand or the principal or whatever, the person that you think ostensibly you're giving dollars to and you want to socially broadcast that, that like, because you're going to tag Chris Bumstead on your story. He's probably not going to repost it. Charitably, maybe mm-hmm. he can repost a tenth of everyone that tags him. But it's more about you telling your tribe, this is a person I deem worthy of admiration. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, I think that's like this weird layer onto all this 
this doesn't really answer the why 30 servings question, but I think I think Tetan sort of did answer that. I think a lot of it is inherited. I think there's a bit of Chesterton's fence there where like things are away. We don't understand when it comes to those old things like uh, lane widths and so forth, but I don't think there's much utility in 30 servings. I think it's just, an, you know, we've all sort of made this pact when we enter the industry that that's what things look like. And if you, if you, if you deviate too far from those parameters, I mean, the amount of vitriol one gets when you, when you criticize the idea is, is shocking. Um, you know, like, like I, I, I told the story last time in the pre-call about how there was a, a, a ranked CrossFitter that I was friendly with that was asking me for supplement advice. And I had teed up, um, I think it was Outlift Amped, but at the time it was one of my favorite, uh, like up and coming things. And it was 20 serving. And he said he wouldn't take it on principle. Now this person had uh, vast amounts of disposable funds, right? It wasn't, a mon it wasn't truly uh, an economic concern. And his, his, uh, again, his ostensible first order concern would have been performance. That's it. I mean, there was, he could win money. That, that's the level of CrossFitter he was. Um, and he just wouldn't, you know, 20, he felt shortchanged by a 20 story product. I could not get my head around this, nor could I sway him with logic. So, you know, I, I don't know. Train every single day. There's also a, a I mean, I guess, but. That's always been my question because that's always like, people are like, I need, I need 30 servings no matter what. And I'm like, do you, how many days a week do you train? Like we're, well, we're like, you, you know, at the margins for like extreme sports or people that are extremely uh, proficient or adept, they may train seven days a week, but yes. on all those days, you're not, you're not knocking down 350 caffeine and really getting after it. You know, you're, mobility, yeah. recovery, active recovery workout. You're not taking pre-workout like that. A lot of people take pre-workout every day, whether they train, it's like a coffee replacement, or let's just be honest, people like getting fucked up. <laughs> like honestly is a legal way of getting fucked up let's acknowledge our market um the name for the phenomenon that you and i are describing tim is just survivorship bias so people ascribe a justification after something survives and then that justification recurs on every other permutation so right. at some point like drew's point uh no explode was the pre-workout that survived and so rather than anybody actually examining is this a good form factor should we have hundred thousand ingredients in a pre-workout should it give you explosive diarrhea everyone just conformed to that specific form factor and then jack came out and it was ultra concentrated because it was sufficiently different and it survived then survivorship bias kicked in again i think that's a very strong motivating factor in an industry where we don't have research and development tools at our disposal to differentiate in a way that another industry can so pharmaceutical doesn't experience survivorship bias to the same degree because they have a higher evidentiary standard. They have to prove through phase three clinicals that their products do the things that they say they do. And so people can't just copy. There's obviously patent protection, of course, but patents expire for after five years, I think, and it opens up to generics. Anyway, the point being, we do a lot of survivorship bias in our industry where, hey, this is the thing that survived. So it must be the thing that worked. Whereas we don't test the null hypothesis that maybe it was just random. Like Jack was not that great of a pre-workout. It just wasn't. It just at the very specific time that like prescription looking label, it was the right time in the zeitgeist. And then it had a little bit of a random push, but because it survived, Cellucor was started and BPI were started originally as Jack clones, right? So it, it becomes like its own developmental inertia, like I said. So it's, uh, it's 9.20. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull this onto our last question, um, which has been an interesting one. Uh, Kenton, you already kind of talked about Organon. Uh, Tim, you already kind of gave Pricebox some, uh, you know, nice words in terms of helping the industry and helping build stuff. But is there an authority that you guys see that exists in the industry to gatekeep 
um, similar to like in the media, uh, in film or music or something like that, you know, the radio pretty much controls music in some way or shape, uh, maybe not as much with streaming these days, but outside of all of this, uh, do you see anything in the industry that kind of gatekeeps or controls the flow of the industry? You, the media sources that I mentioned earlier are the closest thing I think we have. Yeah. 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 Not to criticize you guys, but there's too much of an inbuilt profit motive there. And I'm not going to pull the curtain. Back. I mean, hey, we're, we try to be as transparent as possible. I totally yeah. understand. Right. So they that you disclose, like, I actually admire that about PricePod. They'll say, yeah. you know, uh, we, we do have an advertising exactly. relationship. Yeah. But because that advertising, and believe me, get your money, son. I, <laughs> I want you to be rich off of it. And same with Ryan and everyone else. But the only thing that I've ever been concerned about with that style is that I don't know, and Ben, maybe you disagree. I just don't know if I would want things to be more objective, but then I'm, I can probably pull a thousand examples from other industries that work the exact same way like media has always been funded by advertising. TV programs are split up in the way they're split up to make right. space for a specific quantity of ads. So I don't know. My, I can tell, I, 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 I've been criticized for my uh, majorly positive content. Uh, I, I tend to, and this was a, a, just a shift in my life as, as a whole. I decided not to spend time on negative things. My, my energy felt like uh, it was rotting the inside of me, always calling out other companies and stuff. Uh, it just, it felt negative to always be doing that kind of stuff. But I also just felt like I wanted to help people rather than diminish people. And also uh, every single person has once made a mistake and can come back from it. I know plenty of companies. This is something that Glazier taught me early on, which was a, a lesson that actually was very important for me is that even he in 1996 was using prop blends and really shitty formulas and he thought he had the best everyone mostly authentically thinks that they have the best and so for me to shit on someone for what they think is the best not being the best it, it it's tough so um i very frequently not to make this about myself but i very frequently tell companies like i just don't think this is a good product for us you, to talk about uh, i don't think this is going to go well for you i don't want to have to that, that is true yeah 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 you know, uh there's a there's a company that has a pill fat burner on the industry right now and they are launching a powder version of it in three months the pill is a huge prop blend the powder is gonna be very transparent and good they wanted me to tee up the powder launch by talking about the pill launch this month and i i was really honest and like i don't think this is the way to, to do this launch i'm i'm trying to help you guys i don't i think like let let that sizzle and come out with the powder and and let's feature that heavily let me revise what I meant because I think I have a more elegant way of stating sure. this. For the broadcast networks, there is a firewall between their journalism divisions and their entertainment divisions for the most part, right? And the reason That's why the they institute this firewall is so that to the extent that the horrifically corrupt and wildly idiotic mainstream media, and I say this as a nonpartisan, I, they're all stupid, but to the extent- You're also Canadian. Yeah, and I'm also Canadian, exactly. So. Exactly my point, Joey. I don't give a flying fuck. They're both terrible, trust me. From an outsider's perspective, both bad. Um, but they institute this firewall so that there is something akin to journalistic independence. And what will typically happen in a newsroom is that the editor will, will fiercely defend the journalistic integrity of the investigative, investigative journalists. They will fiercely defend anonymous sourcing. 
and they're self-policing with respect to what constitutes a source or not. Typically what they teach you in journalism schools is you need three independent verifications in order for anonymous source to be credited in a story, right? I don't know if it's the size of our industry. I don't know if it's insufficiently interesting, but we don't have anything like an, an analog to investigative journalism. If we did, that could potentially be an authority because that would be somebody parceling out information according to an inbuilt standard. Now, Ben, you're a man of integrity. We've, you know, we're friends, so I know you to be a good, honest person and you do not fluff products that you don't believe in. But in order for it to be an authority in that sense, I would like to see that firewall. I don't think that's possible given the structural deficits of our industry. So I think you, Ryan and Shane do an excellent job of being those authorities given the constraints. Like I, when I, if I come across a piece of your guys' content, I'll be honest that the ad supported model doesn't really factor into my analysis. I try to see, okay, you did the best that you could given the constraints. So, and I, I hope that this is where, because, because, uh, I think a lot of times people expect me to shit on reviewers or people that don't have the same quality of content. And uh, I've been guilty in the past of criticizing some, uh, although I will stand by the things I've said about, you know, if we're talking about non-compliant formulas or something like that, that's a little bit more um, <clears throat> set in stone. But uh, I, I tend to try to, I try to create breakdowns uh, where we talk objectively about the product and what it offers in terms of efficacy and experience. Uh, I I feel weird doing flavor reviews. Um, I've been criticized that um, my ghost flavor reviews are way too positive. Uh, I mean, like I've, I understand, I get that, I guess, because I love their flavors. But to be fair, I did, I did Drew's protein flavors for completely for free just because I love Drew and his stuff and his stuff was out of this world as well, you know? Um, the, I think one thing that I would say is that our industry has very little in terms of uh, good reputation. And so ad revenue from industries above or outside is very far and few between. If you go and you look at, I watch a lot of YouTube from other industries. Uh, and so there's, in terms of like media for movies, I watch a lot of like Marvel Easter egg breakdown type stuff. I like to, to learn more about the writing there those content creators will get paid like large amounts of ad revenue to talk about a uh, Apple iOS video game that's coming out. I'll pay you $10,000 over the course of a year to talk about this video game you can go play. If I had ad revenue coming in that could support my life, pay for my food and stuff, right? I, I, could, I could go down to the local brick and mortar store, pick random shit off the wall and be like, this shit sucks, you know? It's not really what I want to do. But um, I think one deficit in our industry is that we're looked down upon. So other industries don't want to support us. Yeah, we would talk, that's the island of misfit toys sort of thing. And that, yeah. that even corresponds to purchasing ad space, by the way. Right. Google Ads bans a pretty wide range of ingredients. It's very difficult to compete for Facebook ad space because Facebook penalizes you for talking about how your products work. Right. And yeah, we don't have those residual revenue sources that other industries have where somebody with a fairly decent but not massive following will get a few thousand dollars just to talk about something and they won't even measure the ROI because right. they just have that residual income. Like uh, I build computers and sponsors send me parts that are worth thousands of dollars. I have a computer sitting over there that's worth $12,000. All of it was free. I didn't pay for a cent of it. And all they want me to do is paste, post on my Instagram and I have 8,000 followers. They don't care. They love it. They, li they right. literally go apeshit over it and think that it's like the greatest thing ever 
But for those of us at home, what's that handle for your 8,000 follower computer yes, thingy? I was waiting for somebody to ask me. It is Ingle Mods. Thank you, Joy. I was waiting for the shameless plug. E N G L M O D with an S or a Z? With an S. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. See you. No, wouldn't. All right. All right. It is just well, because it's E N G E L Mods. Ingle Mods. I'm putting that in the. I'm putting that in the chat right now. <laughs> Uh, one thing I arrived on, and it's a refrain that you'll hear on the flyby, is that we uh, we give charitable reviews or we we uh, ascribe charity to companies' thought process processes. I think I land on the same thing you did that it's there's not a big market for shitting all over products all the time, and uh, if you look hard enough, most products have something that is laudable about them. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that was weird. It was just a reverb. Like Tim, I would say, I would say put you in the same category as Ben, though, that I have never encountered somebody ever who's questioned your integrity or the reason why you're explaining anything. And I, I don't think I've ever encountered it the same as with, with well, but, okay, but I wanted to actually add some color to your point is that I do think, however, that if you were to take 100 people that were pay to play, and to be fair, I wouldn't necessarily describe what Price Cloud does as pay to play. Mm. Uh, that is a part of it. And the flyby is not pay to play, but if you were to take 100 entities that were pay to play, uh, something like 80% of them, maybe even more, like you referenced Pareto before, would be corrupted by those influences over time, you know, unfortunately. So um, there, I don't know how you make that that Chinese wall. Can you say that? I guess we'll just go with firewall, but they're literally a Chinese wall between the the company uh, content creators for like the ad revenue for journalism and the, the uh, ad, you know, purveyor. So our industry would crumble, by the way, if there was investigative journalism, because our industry is so incestuous. So imagine like a whitewater uh, style scandal here or a Watergate style scandal in our industry. It would just take too many people down. And we're too, and by the way, in all of this, I've said on Ben's podcast, I'm a shitty person. I, I never exclude myself from this incestuous sort of relationship, but all of our revenue streams are so interstitially related with one another that nobody has an incentive to peel those layers back too far because what's underneath is pretty ugly. So I think that there is a collectively and very invidiously negotiated compact between all of us where I'm not gonna blow up your spot, don't blow up mine. And that can sometimes not serve consumers well to your and Ben's point. At the same time, I think like you guys, meaning like Natural Body, uh, Ben, Ryan, Shane, you guys are not propagating obviously false information. So it's just a long-winded way of saying, I that I've always said this entire three hour podcast, I think we're doing the best we can given the constraints for so, creating an authority. Let me, uh, let me bring up two things. Um, quickly, one thing that I would probably bring is that when we talk to the pay, about the pay to play um, situation, one thing that I think is never really articulated is the difference between person who was given money for sponsored content. Hey, uh, I have this product. I want you to explain it. Then it's done, right? That's one type of content. The other type of content, which I would say, while Tim isn't pay to play, there's a bit more of this there, is that you are paid per sale of that product. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? We obviously try to so, do that. Right. So let me ask you the question. If, uh, if, if there was a difference between you, you pay this one person one, a one-time fee, and they talk about your product, and then you never talk to them again, or you tell this person, every time I sell a product, I give you 20% of that sale. I would personally say the person who gets that 20% every single time is a lot more biased because they're incentivized to oh make God. sure that that product sells. That person who gets that one-time fee, they don't give a fuck if it sells or not. 
they're going to tell you the truth. It's going to happen. And they're going to move on with their lives. Right. Yeah. And you probably won't have a very long relationship with that person. They might not be coming back if they tell too much of the truth. Well, it's bad. But don't you think, Ben, that that one, don't you think it's just a matter of distribution and not quantity of incentive? Yes. Right. Yes. In other words, I think like, at the end of the day, absolutely. I do you, like to illuminate that point. That was my yeah. only thing. If the one time person shits on the company, that company's never coming back to them. So right. I think it's just an issue of how far in time you extend that remuneration. But right. the point that I guess I'm trying to make, and I'm trying to give everybody cover is that I'm not sure there is another way given the constraints on the industry. Like our industry is mephitic. It smells bad. It reeks right. high in, in numerous ways. And I think we're all doing the best we can with a shitty, shitty situation. So that's kind of the second part of my point I wanted to say is it's kind of full circle in this whole thing. There are so many rotten parts of this industry in terms of regulatory uh, enforcement or, or even just following the regulations uh, there's so much disgusting stuff. There's so many arraignments and indictments. There's so much going on. How could we ever expect that kind of ad revenue, that kind of love from industries? I mean, it's it's incredible in any form that Mondelez or IC or anyone is signing up with anyone because we have people going to prison from as far back as Jack 3D, as most recently as the Blackstone thing going along. I, I almost feel like nothing's going to change for anyone until we all get together and decide to be better as a whole. And I don't know if you can even get the FDA to sit down and make that commitment with us. Hmm. The other part falls in enforcement. You know, if, if you, if, you know, someone's breaking the rule, even if they like ignorantly don't know that they're breaking a rule, which they should know that they're breaking a rule. Like it's, it's, you're going to get hammered. You're going to get hammered. If you step yeah, yeah. out of line in any kind of way, you're getting hammered. Big you know how time. things work in the alcohol industry in it with this? Does anyone, uh, a buddy of mine is trying to open up a distillery. I'm curious. This is crazy. This is absolutely nuts. And, the, and if they enforce this in the, with the FDA with self-admitting, this stuff would never happen. If Coors fucks something up, I'm pretty sure this is mostly having to do with ad type stuff. Like uh, there's a lot of regulations and sales of alcohol with ads. When they are slapped on the wrist, the fine goes up for what they just did, not just for cores. It goes up for everyone. So say the yeah. first fine's $1,000. Core has to pay $1,000 if they fuck something up. But down the road, if Glaxon messes up the same thing, now they have to pay the ex exorbitantly larger fee that core has established for everyone, right? So it every time it goes up... And so basically makes examples out of all of us. It makes the situation worse for all of us and no one wants to mess up. There's a reason that, that in alcohol, there's very little issues. Yeah. It's like a prisoner's dilemma. Is anyone familiar with the prisoner's dilemma from game theory? It's just like that. But the problem is- You rat on your friend? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a good psychopath can manipulate the prisoner's dilemma for a lot of permutations successfully. Um, anyways, enough of this bullshit. Can Joey finally talk about why he's obsessed with chickens? I've been waiting three fucking hours to hear- whatever his <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna end this with a joey story about chickens i was hoping we end it with kenton freestyling it yeah, started but... out with you oh yeah chickens and i've thought about it every minute since i just want to hear why you're obsessed with chickens look once upon a time i was big into chickens i was huge into chickens i had an incubator i had roosters i had hens i had the whole thing i was big into many species you see i couldn't just have one kind of chicken i wanted all the kinds of chickens i want all the kinds of chickens i don't want to fucking make chicks but the thing is, you, you learn a little bit about this. You know, you, you, you're incubating eggs, you know, you fuck the hens. You want to watch this. You want it in a controlled 
setting, okay? And you watch the embryonic development. Little did I know that all this information, as I, as a young lad growing up, it would all come back when I began investigating chicken embryo peptides, extracts, etc. And to my knowledge, there are three different kinds of chicken embryonic peptides that are available for supplements that are on the market. One I've, I've deemed most viable, and I'm not going to name any of these chicken embryo combination things, but there's three different ones that are on the market. One I think is most viable, but I don't think it is by any means the most optimal chicken embryo extract that is available, you see, because I think you can actually get you know, there's, there's something which, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll beat around the bush about this as much as I can. There's something you're looking for in a chicken embryo that if you were to take it in a dietary supplement form could potentially yield fantastic benefits. Unfortunately, the three suppliers that are currently making chicken embryo peptides ain't got it, or they don't have the peaks in the expression of the certain uh, growth factor proteins that are there in embryogenesis. When I was in college, I took an embryology class and I was able to go through to these three different suppliers and call them on bullshit as far as like, you know, whether or not they have something viable based on the whole, what are called the hamburger Hamilton scales of the one to 30 day span of an, a, a white and a yolk and a shell transforming from an embryo into an entire baby chicken. So there's a lot of different events that go on here. And there's specific markers in this path that would be particularly favorable for muscle growth. And I had Ben join me on a phone call where I was talking to an R&D guy who was pretty much the head of this one chicken embryo company. And, you know, basically I found out that they didn't have the right stuff. They didn't know what they had. And I was just, I was really disappointed. I was like, well, can we, can we, incubate and you know propagate these eggs a little bit further and then you know turn them into a powder mm -hmm. and they're like well we've already got like all this money and intellectual property and all this stuff it's just heavily invested into what we have and they didn't think about talking to some idiot like me who knows a lot about chickens to make it actually an optimal ingredient and what oh, makes that story all great is, is the perspective that i have a friend that is involved in these chicken embryo. I, I, I don't want to say what, what company, but they had a very interesting ingredient. And I mentioned to Joey that I was friends with someone high up in this company. We set this together and she, she brings in this researcher and I have no clue how into chickens Joey is. I just thought he was interested in the, in the thing. We sit on this call and he goes in on like, I won't name the parameters because I don't want to give too much away on Joey's side, but he had so much knowledge on embryos the, the, and, and the, the parameters around it that I, I had no clue what I was stepping into. I was just on mute laughing. <laughs> yeah, it didn't disappoint. I was hoping it would be that weird and esoteric, so thank you. I, I've been fucking wondering for three hours. <laughs> well, oh, I, I, I went through a lot of hoops on that. Like I, because there were certain patents on certain things, and, and, and this was before I knew that what they had, in my opinion, wasn't viable. I was looking at turtle eggs. I was looking at all kinds of other different birds and stuff. And I was like, mm, I'm going to find a juicy little hot spot. And someone is going to, I was looking at soft shell turtle farmers in Japan. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to hit these guys up and see, you know, how, how long does it take for a turtle to grow and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I can find, you know, the right protein that I'm looking for. I imagine with, especially with turtle embryology, embryology, they wouldn't be a viable candidate just based on, but they're on. It's not as, 
it's not as good as birds yeah. and birds aren't as good as mammals and then i just abandoned yeah. the whole thing and went with mammals and if you've looked at the product flight it's yeah. pretty mammalian as soon as you said that i was thinking like mammals would be a way better target but the ethical issues around that would be anyway pigs got pigs i'm good well i think this is a good time to uh round all this out this has been really interesting and it's been awesome to see all of you guys together do you guys have any final thoughts you want to add in anything that you drew looks like he's got some to please don't impersonate any people again i have to i had to cut that out last time <laughs> so people come by the price of admission for a ticket for him and who do you want to be impersonating? no one person i can't touch but hey man i'm known for my impersonation so with that being said Everybody, thank you for turning in for Nebulous Science on the Price Blow channel. So, um, anyway, I'm going to get your message about that. We'll just name the name. This is, so I feel like I'm I'm not getting it. Stepani. You know yeah. Stepani's videos? Who? Stip Good. Good point. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> you seriously don't know who Jim Stepani is? Is that the... The Dr. Jim Stepani. Oh, he has a PhD. Oh, the, yeah, the, the, the dude that just that sets up the most, parameterizes the most ridiculous studies on the face of the planet, p hacks them to death, and then extrapolates. Okay. He is in a bathtub of Promera concrete right now. Just I see. Yeah, yeah. That guy, the studies that he's set up are like if I taught methodology, like scientific methodology, I would use them as examples of how not to Imagine set up. He went to Yale, okay. So your arguments won <laughs> the Gatorade Award of the Year. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> if you want to, if you, I mean, if you want to read, you should read his BCA study, Kenton. I have. I love him. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it's a sort of example of how to cite research that has, like, you'll, you'll like, you say, oh, I'm gonna make this claim, and I'm gonna cite a study, and then nobody's gonna fucking actually read it, or they're gonna read it and then say, how did you get from point A to point Z here? Because exactly. that's nothing to do with what you exactly. just. Fucking that, was that it like 12 grams? Exactly. It's the heart of the ongoing replication crisis in a number of scientific disciplines where we're finding 30 to 60% of studies cannot be replicated because they parameterized it in a way that was inherently biased. They did the regression analyses in such a way where the p-value looks like it's statistically significant, but it's not in any way, shape, or form. And then there's a lot of fuckery in the study itself. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, Ben, was the BCAA study. And that study specifically is what angered me so much about BCAAs, EAAs. That's what like got me into that rabbit hole. All right. Well, I think we started out with the somewhat ambitious goal and really this was formed impromptu. I think you should, you should stipulate that to people or we should, but it wasn't actually a premeditated uh, goal in the formative stage. We just hopped on a call, but uh, Kenton, you know, articulated the concept of organon. And I think if I had to put a bow on this, I would say we are trying to uh, speak into an exi into existence, this thing, whether or not we anoint, someone else as it, or we become it or something, we're trying to find, uh, you know, some sort of sense-making apparatus in our industry. And that's something I deal with on a daily basis. I think all of you do as well, albeit perhaps at different levels. Um, and we want, we want to have, uh, as aptly named an advisory board that serves both consumers and brands and uh, all the actors in this space. And so it's not fully taken shape yet, uh, I think it's a really esteemed uh, group of peers here that, that have been assembled and uh, I'm somewhat excited to see where this goes, but that is the stated sort of MO for what we're doing. Yeah. I love it. Uh, it's, it's kind of tough because 
even naming something you're part of the authority report in itself is self-stroking, you know? Um, but yeah, some you like trying to call yourself a revolutionary over here or something. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it doesn't exist. Someone has to do it. And uh, I think last year I was sitting down with Mike, just kind of talking about all the different forms of content channels that we have. And I was like, we have a lot of really smart friends, you know, and, and, I'm sure someone out there is like, man, Ben just pulls his friends on the podcast, and lets them talk. He's not that we smart. Call ourselves like, the world's greatest formulator, though. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks. <laughs> and uh, and so it's like I got to get on here, and I, I I want to help bring other people's channels to the people, right? And and the one interesting thing about it, I don't think I really mentioned, is that none of you guys have done things together. You all have very interesting channels on your own. Kenton is a bit mysterious, but everyone generally consumer facing here in their own way when i was telling kenton about this idea what i was excited about was that everyone has their own comfortable workflows and processes and stuff and i the thing i love about the live thing is that it cuts you out of it i know tim and drew and sometimes joey do a lot of stories and you guys know if you fuck up a story you can delete it and post it again right and you get several 15 second sessions to get it right the way that you want to you're live you can't that's what's one thing i really love about doing this is that and there's a lot of banter back and forth but there's also no room to fuck up so not that i wanted to catch anyone but i really enjoy that like candid live back and forth um so i'm really interested going forward uh, a lot after even after i announced this a lot of different people stepped up and were like hey this would be really cool if you added in uh, I don't want to name any names, but like different people were like, this is a cool group. What if you added in X? What if you added in Y? Like, and I, I'm excited to modularly uh, assess and change things for different topics, but this was an, an awesome pilot, I think. So I guess uh, I'll say until next time, thank you guys for joining in and uh, let's talk soon and figure out what the next one will be.